Hello again, friends, and you are my friends, and welcome back to another edition of 605, the super podcast, the only podcast on Turner Time, the mothership, the best wrestling podcast on the planet, the only wrestling podcast that matters, call somebody. I'm your host, the great Brian Last. It's me! The hardest working man in wrestling podcasts. Yeah! Baby, baby. So what are you trying to prove? And I'm very happy to be joined once again by one of the most popular co-hosts in show history. He's done so much for the show, whether it's in the co-host chair or doing his many characters. And that, of course, is your friend and mine, Howard Baum. Howard, welcome back to the show. Hey, hey, hey. Thanks for remembering, everybody. Well, there it is, the usual hey, hey, hey that we're so used to. It's going to be an interesting open here. I got to say, before we went on the air, my headphones broke. One side, one ear, one ear, one uh, one headphone, I don't know what to call it. One side just broke, and I foolishly decided with these expensive headphones to do a Google search and how to fix them, and I took it apart, and in the midst of it, a spring that was in there popped out and flew somewhere in my office. So I'm operating with one ear, one side right now, one channel, and the other side is just blank. It's empty. It's the lights out match in the other ear. And my head is half clogged up, so this is the audiophile special. (laughs) Well, you know, I wanted (laughs) you to uh, be here to co-host this week. I wanted to get your thoughts on something. I recently saw, probably within the last month, you posted in the mothership that you went to some event, and you posted some pictures, and... A few stories, you said there's more to the story that you'll talk about when you have an opportunity, and here's that opportunity, but you really haven't done much around wrestling in a long time. I can't think of it in CAC. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, you could tell me that you do all these things, but I can't think of other (laughs) events that you frequently go to. I know you don't really watch wrestling often, and you did go to this event, and it sounded interesting. What can you tell me about this show you went to? Well, for years and years, my buddy, uh, local wrestling pariah, Self-described pariah. He may be a pariah, but he's my pariah. One of the men with the coolest evil names in the history of wrestling, my friend Lou Spector. He's been telling me, you got to come check out shows. you got to come check out shows. And for years, I've been telling him they haven't invented a show that Howard Baum is going to go to as a fan. Until in November, they had a thing called Reefer Mania 3. <laughs> Reefer Mania 3. The third one. Um, exactly. The first two were way, uh, were not on my radar at all, but um, Reefer Mania 3, and Lou's like, you got to come check this out. We walk inside, and it's like this Miami Vice warehouse all the way down in Miami, and uh, the cops are doing security, and there's people around the block, and you walk inside to this cool industrial building in a truly smoky arena for reasons that will become apparent in a moment, little ring set up in the middle, And the biggest open-air weed market you've ever seen in your entire life. Booth after booth of edibles, rollables, smearables, waxables, whatever the kids are into these days. Shrooms, you name it. Just booth after booth. Yeah. How are they doing this in Florida? You're not in Washington State. You're not in Amsterdam. How are they doing this? I mean, Florida's a pretty strict place. I mean, I know you're in South Florida. No, I... I hope I'm not, you know, dropping a dime here, but cops were like actively walking around. Cops were doing uh, security outside. If you guys want to look it up, uh, Reefer Mania 4 is coming up January 18th (laughs) in Miami. 
<laughs> and you can look at their own Facebook, Read for Mania 4. It's like it's not like I'm uh, snitching on anybody. I, I even asked Lou, is it okay? Like, how much should I talk about it? He's like, well, everyone knows about it. It's like they're publicizing it. So it's promoted by uh, my friend J.B. Cool. His uh, personal address is 1645. <laughs> no. But J.B. Cool from the FEW, which I don't quite remember what that stands for, but you know, there's a group in Northern Florida and they, they have a tagline. We believe in wrestling. So the FEW, their tagline is get this. We make believe. Interesting. What do you think about that for a wrestling? Can you imagine the days of Luthes and Buddy Rogers at the committee? <laughs> well, we make believe folks. I can't get over the fact that the cops are working security there. And <laughs> It's, I mean, when you say it's an open weed market, I mean, like, there's gimmick tables with different... Uh, yeah, I, instead of many... Barry Windham headshots, it's it's weed and weed and weed. I'll repost it to the... Uh, I put it up on the mothership, and I'll bump it, but, uh, yeah, it's an open-air weed market. Eighth, quarter, you name it. Just be... One guy, these two shirtless outlaw bikers, they had a bag of weed the size of a dog food bag with them. It was just insane. They had edibles everywhere. They had hot model girls walking around. <laughs> This funky urban crowd. They're playing sick beats all night. How many people? And the wrestling. Attend this oh, crowd. my God. A ton of people. And, and, and mind you, the wrestling was not the main attraction. It could have just as easily been a wet T-shirt concert or a contest or a, um, anything. Wrestling was not the draw because I asked people as I was walking around. And the crowd was like young, urban, hip people. And it was a bunch of hipsters and stuff. And there was no set seating. It was like kind of free range and everyone's roaming around buying stuff and smoking weed. And then the matches are kind of like an afterthought. They had like a hip hop DJ come out, which really, if I'm honest, is what first drew me to professional wrestling to begin with is my um, passion for Latina hip hop. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I, I cherish those early memories of wrestling. So it was kind of a full circle moment for me. But you know, some of the things my eyes witnessed on this night, on the way there, Lou said, you're going to see at independent shows these days that it's a pastiche of everything that has happened in wrestling in the last 20 years. So sure enough, every little scrawny indie guy gets in there and the match starts with him doing an HBK foot stomp on the mat to get support. The next thing you know, they're doing a stunner and the rocks move. And um, that's the first match. Because, like many a veteran greater than I has said, you just don't do that shit. Yeah. All the tenets are out the window. And um, let me tell you a little more about this show. Took a couple of notes here on what I witnessed. I took some pictures of this stuff. They had a weed in a, in a suitcase mat suspended above the ring, which wasn't that much of a prize because you could, like, fall over and fall face first into a bunch of weed. Was it a ladder match? In- I mean, was that... Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had a ladder match, yeah. And a a midget came out and brawled with a guy named Cha-Cha during this match, too. (laughs) And I was was still kind of stunned by just the visual of, like, a million people milling around smoking weed and wrestling and everything. So, uh, you know, then we got into our intergender midget match, which was not bad. And what was interesting, there were really no wrestling fans there. I asked all the weed dealers and a lot of the fans, I'm like, well, are you a wrestling person? Or, And they're like, no, no, not at all. And so it was kind of like just something that was happening in the background, like a band, like, you know, they didn't care. They weren't into it. But it was interesting to see the civilian and the new crowd and the modern people pop for old established spots like midget spots and Rikishi's butt in the face spot. 
that haven't been seen by human eyes in many a year. Things straight out of the 1930s fairgrounds, you know, these midget spots and everything, and they're doing them for naked virgin eyes, and people are reacting to it and popping for it. Even I was. I'm like, oh, my God, they're doing this in 2019, like the, you know, all these midget spots. So what was interesting? Did one of the midgets bite the referee's ass? I, I think they left that one out. I think things have progressed <laughs> a little since since uh, little Louis' days, Bobo Johnson. But my, what was really truly a test of why it is important to be a professional wrestler is because a couple of the matches did feature real professional wrestlers. And mas, is it Mascara Sagrada or Mascarada Sagrada? Mascara Junior? Sagrada is full size. Mascarita Sagrada is the mini version of Mascara Okay, Sagrada. well, it was the big guy. I thought his dad was somebody because he's a junior. So it's Mascara Sagrada <laughs> Junior. My, my, my accent is really on display for this one, Awful. folks. I, thank you. <laughs> thank you. I'm usually a little more fluid than that. But he worked against a guy who looked like a decent, uh, you know, good worker. And the crowd actually started paying attention to it. They started doing some lucha spots and back and forths and everything. And for the first match on the card, both guys looked like they were in shape and competent and were what we like to call workers, competent workers. And I'm like, wow, I turned to my friend Lou and I said, see, that's real wrestling for the first time tonight. Then they were followed by a guy in a judge suit who worked against a guy in a bunny suit. So by this point in the evening, I'm stoned to the gills and we're sitting in the front row because things just maneuvered that way. Like people got up, people sat down and I'm sitting there. I'm like, entertain me. There's a dog walking around. There's a girl covered with sparkles next to me. <laughs> There's like all kinds of stuff going on. How and many I see people are actually idiots. sitting down? How many people are actually sitting down versus the, wandering um, around, walking around the room? Oh, just tons. I mean, that I I'm horrendous at counting crowds, but easily thousands. I mean, a couple thousand in a, in a, in a cool space. It would be like the ECW arena packed to the gills, packed with weed with a ring in the middle of it. And it was just like that people was from every ECW walk of arena. Yeah, really? Well, I'm glad I made it up there. It was cool to actually see the arena in person. But anyway, yeah. So I'm sitting there in the front row and now I'm like stoned and I'm just like, okay, now it's full circle from the nine-year-old boy who worked into the Miami Beach Convention Center in 1974 to witness his first match, made his way all the way to ringside, hobnobbed with everybody. Now I'm sitting front row at a show completely unknown after 15 years after attending my last show. And like, this is it, the full circle moment. And this, these two idiots come out in a judge outfit and a bunny outfit. So I lost it. And <laughs> I scared the girl in the knee-high socks next to me. She moved discreetly two seats over. I said, hey, you know, Buddy Rogers and uh, Antonina Rocca are spinning around in their graves like a rotisserie chicken right now. That was what do it. you think you're... I-, I thought that's who you saw, Bunny Rogers. Ah, that was, uh, what's his name? A Pfeffer gimmick, right? <laughs> I don't, I, I don't, no, Bunny Rogers bunny, and, Hobo, bunny and, and Hobo Brazil. I like that. You saw Bunny but, um, Rogers. He had Bunny Rogers. I just, I, so then the hipsters next to me were laughing and nobody appreciated any of these wrestling references. And I'm like, uh, but do you even know what I'm talking about? Have you ever heard of Jack Briscoe, John Tolos, Jerry Lawler, Dusty Rhodes? Do you even know what I'm saying? And I didn't know if he heard me or what, even though I was three feet away from him. And he turns around, he goes, shut up. And he got no pop. And I go, oh, that's some real Fred Blassie crowd work, which 
got a pop from my little crowd. I go, but you don't know who that is either. And this just points to the problem of there being no gatekeepers in wrestling. Because you could say, what does it matter in 2020 if there's humor, if there's this or that, everyone's smart to it. But no, they kept this out for a reason. Because 20 years from now, wrestling is going to be nothing like wrestling. We're going to think these are the old days of Gotch and Fez when you look at what's going to be happening in 20 years. Because when I was 10, I saw Dick Slater, Bob Roop, King Curtis. And then later in my life, when I got into the business and did whatever I did, I always said, if I do anything around wrestling, I'm conducting myself like those guys. That's wrestling. And a guy who's 35 now, he says that about Scott Hall or whatever he witnessed 25 years ago or whatever it may be. And so by letting these clowns in and the Russos and the bad influences and the bad comedy and the skits and the monologues, none of that was wrestling, which is why I always say you can't judge today's product by professional wrestling standards. Then what do you judge it by? You've got to call it sports entertainment. You've got to call it its own thing. Was there anyone on the show? I mean, this is South Florida. I can, I can imagine there's only a certain pool of wrestlers. Was there anyone you knew from the old day? Like, was Malia well, you Osaka know what's funny? on the show? I, I will, no, I didn't bump into her, even though we would have <laughs> kayfabed each other if we did. But um, it's just, just a tradition we have. There's no actual heat. We just like to kayfabe each other. And then if we're forced to say hello, we do. And then we go back to kayfabe each other. So I don't know. But... Um, no, I was actually expecting to have a nice reunion with all my South Florida indie buddies and such, but nobody would work the show. They didn't want to get the stink on them of, you know, they didn't want to get busted or raided. The literal stink. I say, I say stink in the best sense of the word, mind you, because it was the coolest wrestling show I've been to in a long time. But, and I'm sure all these guys wanted to work it, but, you know, it's not the best for publicity like Gangrel is working with the Davy mayor and all this stuff running high-class shows. And so there's a whole pool of people that can't be used in this highly seemingly illegal uh, operation. But no, to answer your question, to answer your question, <laughs> no, there were no reunions. Uh, I did attend a Gangrel show after that, uh, which was kind of interesting. And it kind of also underlined my points that I was making about Indie wrestling, because I was kind of, you know, everything is such a format now. Like at every show you see, there will be the three guys with the handy cams just standing up, roaming around at will, shooting the stream for their YouTube channel or whatever it is. But in the old days, we were taught to stay out of the way so the wrestlers could actually get the attention and don't get in the paying fans' way. Crouch down in a corner. Don't be seen. And then, you know, from the first match on, well, I'm not going to bury Gangrel's show because he's a friend of mine, but once again, in the middle of the show, the Samoans came out, El Hijo de uh, Samu and El Hijo de Tonga Kid came out, the Samoans, the new generation of the Samoans, and they cleared the ring, and all of a sudden, a wrestling show broke out in this independent show. And I'm like, oh, damn, that's some real heat, that's some real excitement, that's some real action. And then we're throwing some guys around. It's just, it just shows you the difference between, you know, you can't shit on a student. You got to learn somewhere. But these cosplay people and what's going on in the comedy, somebody who's 10 years old now is going to think that's cool 
and they're going to pervert it even further 20 years from now. You know, it's interesting because when the UFC got really popular, I certainly thought that we would see wrestling kind of go a little bit more in that direction, more serious, more submission moves, trying to bring some realism back into wrestling just because the UFC was so popular, mixed martial arts was so popular. And that's where wrestling started was as a shoot, and then it devolved into what it is now. But it's kind of gone the other way. It's gotten sillier. And I don't even know if it's gone the other way or just that the people who do the silly stuff are the people now in charge. You know, if the indie well, you show know, is run by the silly guy and he, all the mm-hmm. matches are going to be silly and have gimmicks and everyone's flipping, then you have to do that if you want to work there. You know what's fascinating about that? When AEW first started, in my mind, I thought that they were going to win the war with WWE because they were going to have a New Japan approach to their matches and to their presentation. And I think that's what they should have done. I think they should have taken NJPW action style and then put their own twist on it, which I, which I leave, we'll call factor X, fill in the blank, do your own thing. Don't make it a derivative of Vince, please, because everything they do trickles down to TNA and every crappy indie group from there on down. Do you start doing the long interview? Every shitty group after that has to do the long interview. Do your own thing. That's why Paul Heyman was a genius. He's the only one who cracked me out of my wrestling fan stupor in 1994 to pay attention because something was happening that was different, that was not a part of the same fucking formula that these people just lazily trot out because Vince did it on wrestling superstars. And it kills me, the lack of imagination. And... You know, I look around at the product, which I've been ignoring for so long, and it's exactly what I thought it would be. It's just a derivative of a derivative of a backstage skit of a logicless angle. And by the way, wrestling is so redundant these days. There's like 650,000 hot goth girls, 850 (laughs) shine stardom Japanese girls, all with the same body. 675,000 hot girls, all these guys who are exactly the same. If 300 of them died tomorrow, you would never know. Now, it's, what I like to see, it's heartening. I like Christian Cage. He stands out as a big monster. I like some Christian of these Cage. new guys. Or who's that big guy that was in Impact for a while? Brian Christian Cage? Cage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a mental block when it comes to that name. I hate that name. <laughs> what? what do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But I, uh, no, yeah. I mean, he stands out because he's a monster and they got some big fat guys now, like those ones WWE poached. And that's good. It's, it's diversity, but it's so redundant. I mean, this week in Boning Up, since it's been a while since I made an appearance, I wanted to be current with the wrestling world. And I said, well, I broke out of my Rumpelstiltskin stupor and attended two actual live shows. Why, why don't I just check out what's going on on TV? So... The thing is, I looked at about two minutes of each TV show, and I'll just give you a brief rundown. I'm not even going to consult my notes. Two minutes. And it's just, I I wanted to be up to date with you and discuss anything that might come up. So So what do you have? You have cable, so you can see the WWE, but can you see the smaller groups that are not on a USA or a TNT? Yeah, I dug some some shit up. So, you know, just the thumbnail, my week's worth of viewing, just very lazily, very quickly, and I guarantee you I didn't watch more than five minutes of any of these programs, but WWE Raw, 
I fucking hate WWE. There's my review. I don't care what they do at this point. They can bring Superstar Graham back and crown him as champion with his, you know, he can, even if he grows his sideburns back, I'm not going to be a fan. I'm done with them. There's nothing they can do for me as a fan. I hate their presentation. I hate their announcers. I think King is doing better than he ever has done, though. I think he's really good out there. I think he's, like, holding the mantle for, you know, how I... It's tough with Lawler because you've seen Lawler at his peak. You've seen great Lawler Mm -hmm. in Memphis as a babyface or as a heel. Mm -hmm. So when you see the WWE version of him, you just know how much better he could be. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's better now than he had been in the past, especially during the Attitude Era where he was just completely fucking goofy and, oh, puppies! ah!" No, he was a joke. That was embarrassing. Yeah. I burned my King Lawler shirt from 1983 that I got after I saw that nonsense. (laughs) (laughs) no but i mean i mean he's at least a throwback to the to to trying to you know put some breadcrumbs in the hamburger mix of professional wrestling like trying to put that old style tradition into the commentary you know because these young people don't know how are they to know so yeah that's it for raw wwe sucks and i hate him and by the way i'm not one of these partisan people it just happens I'm always in lockstep with Cornette because we're both raised on professional wrestling and he's a genius and I don't put myself in his category, but I don't take sides. I'm not like, I want AEW to fail because Cornette doesn't like him or, oh, I hate NWA because Cornette was on there and now he's not. It has nothing to do with Cornette. And matter of fact, I don't even know why I'm bringing him up, but I just know that there's so much divisiveness now. Like, yeah, I hate WWE, but... One of my main motivations for me wanting to see AEW succeed or at least spark another Monday Night War is because it would be healthy for wrestling and it would be, you know, we're all in the wrestling business, so to speak, you know, if we're auxiliary characters and um, we're all trying to do something with it. So if the industry is healthy, then that's good for us and it gives us more to do, everybody. And the thing is, now the writing's kind of on the wall. They're like nitro light. And the bloom is off the rose, and they've done several embarrassing things. And if I were them, I would have done NJPW Action Plus, you know, something that's your own, but not that has been done before. Well, let me get, and, well, here's part of what I think the problem is, is that imagine when you were growing up watching Florida. Imagine if Eddie Graham was completely hands-off, and he said, Dusty, I want you to book. And Buddy Colt, you're also going to book a separate part of the show. And Mike Graham, I want you to book part of the show. So there's no centralization. Even though people say, oh, it's, you know, Tony Khan's the main booker. It all comes from Tony. You have guys that he's empowered who have completely, well, I shouldn't say they all do, but they, several of them have different views than the other ones do. And that's where you have a little bit of a problem. That's why that show feels so clunky and it feels so all right. over the place because you can go from a serious segment with Cody Rhodes. And by the way, I know everyone's saying, please don't talk modern wrestling. We're almost done. I promise you folks, <laughs> you can go from Cody Rhodes to a women's match that goes for 15 minutes to then some goofy shit that you don't want to see because it feels like WWE light. Like you just said before. Yeah. 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 And, and it is clunky. And you know, what was a disappointing moment for me was the MJF. Jericho confrontation, because there's another missed opportunity. You have Jericho, the god of professional wrestling, the return of the Lord's son himself, Chris freaking Jericho, right? And 
What do they do out there with MJF? Arguably today's like rising hottest heel. I understand. Is that is that uh, accurate or am I? I would say so because he's young and he's a fantastic promo, and he is someone that if I had to put money on someone for the future, I'd put money on him because he right. he's done some of the goofy stuff, and at this point, everyone has because again, if you're coming up in a wrestling world where every independent show, just about every independent show has silly stuff, has dance routines, has guys in costumes has dick flips, has invisible men. If that's on yeah. the shows and you need to get booked, before you know it, you end up having to do it too. Right. It's like being a band. It's like being a bland. And you, or, bland. or bland. It's like being in a band in 1973 and you got to play Dream On because that's how you get booked. Yeah, I mean, that's part of the problem. So, I mean, he could do the serious stuff and he's fantastic on the mic. But, right. you know, everyone now, just there's no, there's no feeder system Without the stupid shit, and that's part of the right. problem. But like you I said, did say no for his gimmick, though, strictly speaking for his character, though, if he's that rich, A, he can afford to buy a new scarf once in a while, and also I'd have that thing removed from my neck, or at least looked at, at the very least. What thing on his neck? And that's my only critique. Other than that, he seems like a, a nice lonsman, and I wish him all the best. I do think he has an old-school uh, delivery, and a kind of a tongue-in-cheek Kind of like he knows he's being a heel, but he's not breaking from it either. No, he doesn't break at all. I mean, never breaks. Right. Which is good. Right. I wish there were more people like that. No, totally. I mean, if if I was a wrestler today, you wouldn't see me on uh, Twitter except to be a heel. You know, it's it's redundant by now to say, oh, these people thanking their opponents and all this shit. Come on. Because everybody just wants the... See, (sighs) wrestling became... Another way of putting yourself out there in this narcissistic society of ours. These people were not raised on Jack Briscoe. They were raised on YouTube videos, and they just want to put something sparkly on and get attention. See, it's sad that the segment you saw was the one with him and Jericho. I know a lot of people liked it, but I actually didn't because Jericho had been really good in AEW, and MJF is a fantastic talent. But to me, I saw that segment, and I thought it was too much like WWE. Totally. I mean, they have to bicker back and forth. And it's, how about some real life heat? King of wrestling, Chris Jericho. And by the way, you know what kind of a vibe that Chris Jericho gives off? It's a kind of a vibe where you were in a shit hot local rock band in 1987. And you had a local hit on the radio, maybe. And you'd get laid every night of the week and you look like Steve Vai. Well, now you fast forward and it's 2013. You're 50 years old. And you're still trying to do the same routine, trying to pick up a 20-year-old waitress and wondering why you look like an idiot with your dyed frizzy hair and your bangles because you didn't make it and now it's too late. And that's the vibe he gives. It reeks of desperation. And what's so funny to me is how he's such a divisive character because half the audience out there, probably less than half. I'm sure more will agree with me because they're more in my age group and they've seen, you know, the people that we usually discuss. But a lot of younger people, he's the god. He, they lump him in with Flair and Briscoe, like however good anybody was. Oh, San Martino and then, of course, Jericho. To me, Jericho was never better than third from the top. And um, I don't know what his come to God moment was, you know, when Austin caught a gusher against Hart and then he became and he cut Austin 316 and Stone Cold was born or Briscoe and Funk made their names or what was Chris Jericho's 
crowning moment where he gets to be the most decorated, celebrated, talked about champion in the same breaths as these legends. I don't see it. And I wish somebody would explain it to me. Perfectly capable, a professional, a tough man, stood up to Goldberg, might be a nice guy, have no idea, never met him. But it's just a very Mickey Rourke vibe he's given off lately with all these desperation moves. Oh, I'm 50. It's time to get a, a sleeve tat. Uh, like, you're only young and cute when you're young and cute. You know, that shit doesn't work. It, it, it's not going to work for David Lee Roth. It's not going to work for Chris Jericho. <laughs> well. And just buying your jacket from the same company is not going to do it. And in addition to that, the Canadian accent is the least scary accent that you could possibly come up with. Like if they let Archie Goldie, the stomper talk and he sounded like Chris Jericho, he'd be in the second match. Hey, I'm gonna, you know, you're on the list. Why? What's with all the comedy? What is with all the comedy, by the way, he's Mr. Oh, I come from Jack Briscoe. I come from Ric Flair. And he's like, I'm the champion, the bubbly. Why does he insist on the bad humor and the list and all that? Why not? I mean, I, I don't get the appeal of that. You know what I'm saying? Like, what is that weird comedy that he injected? I can't answer your question, but I know what you're saying. Like, why does he think it's cool? Why do other people think it's cool? How is that becoming of a world champion? How is that cool in any way? That, That disastrous, abysmal promo that he cut in his hot tub, trying to drink a bottle of champagne coherently, just filmed in his backyard in Tampa on a whim. Like, what is this? Well, that was after the title belt had been stolen, I believe. Right, right. And the reputation was starting to go around that Jericho may like to um, consume a little bit. And he kind of owned it. Instead of, you know, running from it, the little bit of the bubbly thing came out of that. Yeah, but I mean, geez, Le Champion and all that. And I don't know what's going on with his body. And I don't know what's going on with his head. He's apparently going to the um, Steven Seagal Institute for Hair Restoration or something. (laughs) Oh, come on. (laughs) Uh, Far be it from me uh, to jinx the hair gods. At my advanced age, I am holding on proudly to every follicle that I can muster, and I I don't want to anger the hair gods. I'm very fortunate because when I look through my Facebook, everybody I went to school with looks like Alfred Hitchcock. So I'm very (laughs) fortunate. (laughs) Even though in the morning light I'm starting to become a Lon Chaney Jr. character, but that's completely beside the point. Um, yes, where were we? Shitting on Chris Jericho's hair, yeah. Well, you were. So what I don't get is I understand hair products and, you know, age and everything, but it's kind of like Chris Jericho as a world champion wrestler and rock star is like one of those girls you see at the mall with the fake hair, lips, boobs, ass, and from afar you go, that's a hot girl. And then you get up to them and they're like something out of Madame Tussauds. (laughs) It's kind of a smoke and mirror thing with him because I don't understand how the sum of his work or the individual parts of his work amount to anything where he gets this level of respect. Again, I understand what you're saying. I can't answer for uh, Chris Jericho. <laughs> I was looking for a counterpoint, but I remember that you don't like him either. So. Well, no, I have and liked I mean... him in AEW. I have thought, for the most part, there are things lately, I mean, the MJF promo you mentioned before I didn't really like, but there's a lot mm-hmm. that I have liked. And I also think he needs to go to the gym. And, you know, who am I to say that? I'm just someone who watches wrestling. 
Yeah, yeah, but I think he has some weird body stuff going on. I mean, I don't know what's going on with that. Like he had a, you know, he has that Scott Steiner chest thing, which is uncontrollable. And then, you know, at old age, I mean, yeah, anybody I'm sure at his age would like to look like that. But yeah, it's just, I just don't get, I, I respect him as a wrestler and the fact that he came from the old school and I'm not shitting, shitting on him. I'm just saying that he overachieved to a point that I don't understand. Like, I don't not like him. I don't watch his matches and say, oh, this guy completely sucks. But I don't see him as this, you know, the guy they put on a pedestal like that. So anyway, that's about all the Jericho. I want to complete my little tour of my Rumpelstiltskin wrestling tour. I tuned into NXT for a minute. And the only comment I can say is I saw the guy come out who looks like he's from the 1930s, who looks like he weighs like 140 pounds. You know, you know who I'm talking about? I'm not sure. Jack Gallagher? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So it, this is like if a toddler watched wrestling, this is the review that you would get. It's like someone who never watched wrestling before. It's nice. It's refreshing that I haven't watched any of this shit, and now I can view it and comment on it. So anyway, I didn't watch more than two seconds of it. It's apparently hosted by a guy in a tiny suit and a leprechaun. That's all I could gather. Are, are you sure you watch NXT? I don't know. <laughs> leprechaun. Have you seen the team that hosts the Leprechaun? They have this big guy who's wearing one of these like thin-cut suits like the kids wear these days, which is such a regrettable fashion choice. If you're going to wear a suit, kids, get a classic-cut suit. Look classy and fit. You don't need these. Guys don't need these tight leg jeans. Your ankles don't need to be showing when you're wearing a suit. Have some class. Watch a Cary Grant movie. You know? That's not a suit. That's now, like now a, you sound like an old man. Have some class. Well, like, watch I a mean, Grant no, you're movie. Gonna, no, you're going to look back on this in 10 years and say, oh, well, look at those. Look at Every guy has like a gunt because he's wearing these like James Corden <laughs> pants. Come on. <laughs> so last but not least, I check out NWA. Even had to go onto the computer for that. Couldn't do that through the TV. And that proves that even when a company gets it, so to speak, they don't get it. Now... Back to my point about not being a Cornette guy or a Cornette apologist, even though I seem to agree with everything he ever says, I thought he was the best thing about that show. And um, it really was just so fitting to hear his voice coming from that studio in that setting. And it's the only time that I would like to have heard the voice of Tony Schiavone. I detest Tony Schiavone as an announcer. I hate the tone of his voice. His used car salesman-ish delivery, his overly cloying, uh, you know, style. But um, I would have liked to have seen Tony Schiavone in that environment. Schiavone and Cornette, that would have been nice. Haven't really seen much of it, except to say that they're trying to present it like the old school product in front of modern eyes. It's completely out of time. It just it doesn't work. In this, in, and they're trying to do the cutesy stuff now. So you have all these groups. AEW gets the opportunity to do strong style. NWA has the opportunity to, be, to do old style NWA. And yet, nobody somehow knows how to do professional wrestling. Well, no, and it's, no one knows how to do it, but the other problem is the fans. I mean, I think with a studio setting, one of the biggest mistakes was inviting the usual fans to go there. It should have been no tickets on sale, and they should have gotten kids. They should have gotten old people. They should have gotten a different audience than just a bunch of yeah. white guys between the age of 25 and 48 because they're yeah. reacting in a fake way so that it doesn't seem genuine. I mean, you know, I can go off about a whole number of other things there, but I think that's part of the issue is if you want to present something that has the feel of what old school wrestling had, you need to try to replicate what the audience was to the best of your Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, it, you know, the thing is, the whole thing, the people have lost their innocence. You'd have to look far and wide to find people stupid enough to accept professional wrestling on its face in a small studio. I mean, you really would have to go to the to the home for the demented and small children. And by the way, <laughs> here's a little sidebar that I always found humorous. Like the old school workers, this is completely unrelated, but just, uh, just uh, bear with me for a minute. All the old workers would say, oh, we had them hanging on every this and that. They were, I had them in the palm of my hand. But who are you really fooling? Like they wheel these people in from the home. I'm not going to start insulting the audience like a, like uh, somebody who will go unmentioned. But I mean, it's not like they're performing in front of the most um, astute members of society, shall we say. In most cases, they're not pulling the wool over the most intelligent of our population. And they're so proud of their psychological manipulations. But it might be in front of a nine-year-old kid or something, and that counts as like, oh, we really had him that night. You know what I mean? Well, I'll tell anyway, you, I'll tell you what, Howard. Let's move away from this because I'm sure everyone's yes, sick you. of contemporary. I was wrestling. drifting. Sorry about that. But let's talk about something else. Something that's been in the news, especially in the Mothership Facebook group. I was sent a copy of this book by a member of the group. I don't know. If, well, I guess he kind of publicly made a post. So I'll give him credit. John Lee put this book up, reportedly, several days ago on Facebook. The Hangman, you may remember him from 605s in the past. The Hangman Bruce Pobans posted that anyone who wanted his book could just message him and he would email them a copy of the book. Now this, and I assume email, I don't know uh, what other method he would have used. This is a book I've wanted to get my hands on for quite a while because we've heard about it. We heard him talk about it, but no one actually saw or had a physical copy. We'd only heard that The Hangman wrote a book. And based on his reputation, I wanted to see this. For those of you new to the show, <laughs> the hangman Bruce Pobans was a man who made many fantastic claims about his wrestling career, even attending Cauliflower Alley with the other veterans. And it has been determined by every single historian or wrestling fan that has researched his career that it was all bullshit. He was actually asked not to come back to the Cauliflower Alley Club ever again. So this book was kind of like a holy grail. What did he write in this book about his fantastic career? And what now, didn't he write in this book? Well, now we have it here. I want to get your thoughts. I know you had a chance to skim through it, Howard, but let me uh, start by a quote here from the book. I have a few things that we'll talk about. It says, I talk about the CAC because at their annual reunion, they host an awards dinner on Saturday night where they honor around 10 or so workers from the business. In fact, in 2005, I have been informed that my name was chosen as one of the honorees. For the record, he was not honored in 2005. <laughs> I don't know who would have informed him of that, but that's kind of the tone of the book. He says a lot of things, none of it's verifiable, about wrestling. Right. I mean, apparently him and his wife really did run through the streets with the Olympic torch. but. The wrestling stuff is out of control. What were your general thoughts? I don't know how aware of the hangman you are, but what did you think <laughs> skimming through this? Well, uh, first of all, he's a truly gifted writer that needs to be acknowledged right off the bat. <laughs> Each page uh, under, uh, is like two paragraphs. Oh, my God. It's like, uh, 
And I mean, it, it's kind of defies imagination. Brian sent me uh, the manuscript uh, about a week ago, but I've been unseasonably busy due to the holidays and such. So I looked at it all today and I said, how am I going to remember all of this? But it's, it's so outrageous. How can you not remember it? Like, I was racking my brain, like, if I'm going to write a book, how many stories do I have? And he has like four famous wrestler stories in there. And one of them revolves around a multi-page story about eating crab legs with Bobo Brazil. That's, that's one of the, the standout memories from his career, how they held up this a completely fictitious story, meanwhile, <laughs> that, that happened about how, oh, you know, how wrestlers like to, you know, take advantage of buffets. So me and Bobo Brazil go to this buffet in St. Pete. And we ordered the crab legs, and the woman brings us out four crab legs that look like fingers. And we ordered another four, and they came out 45 minutes later. I mean, I don't know. This guy's tripping. His Andre the Giant story was, oh, I never I showed up to the arena. He doesn't say which town or what era this was. I'm going to stop you here. I'm going to read this excerpt. Right. This is his chapter, chapter 10 from Hang In There. Andre the Giant. The late 70s, I was traveling up and down the highways, hitting almost every town possible, jobbing my heart out just to make a name and a few dollars. While setting up future booking dates, I was offered a gig I could not say no to. All I had to do was to get down to Texas, and I'll make an easy thousand bucks. I had a couple days between shows, so I took my time. That morning, I got into town, and I looked for the arena. As I drove up, I noticed out on the marquee, the hangman versus Andre the Giant. Right. That's the part that got me. That's the part that really got me. Like, when do they ever do that, much less under those circumstances? With no buildup, it's just out of the blue, the hangman and Andre the Giant. Well, I never met this Andre. But I heard stories about him. He was just starting out in the business, they say. I parked my car and walked inside to find the office. Inside, sitting at a desk, was the promoter. I gotta st- it's just, you know what it is? Even his stories, like the, the attempts to add descriptive right. detail are so banal. And right. So insipid. Like I walked in and there was a man at a desk. Like it's just, it's so. Right. Like, if you were a Starsky and Hutch scriptwriter who had to do a wrestling episode, like, well, what, what happens in wrestling? Oh, they drive a lot. Oh, the car trips were brutal. We were known to blah, 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 pop a gasket. Like, everything you've ever heard around wrestling, he just takes it, like, from wherever and puts it into his own life. I mean, it's outrageous. I thought we actually stopped, I thought, thought we actually stopped picking on him because it became too pathetic of a character, but... Well, the release of I guess the book. Mortor- I guess the moratorium, moratorium is off due to his crimes against nature. I introduced myself and sat down. We talked about what he wanted in the ring, and he inquired about my availability for future shows. I wanted to take a few days off and rest up before I had to fly to Japan. Right. <laughs> so I only agreed to one <laughs> more gig, which would be the next day after, excuse me, which would be the day after next. Still right. giving me plenty of time to make my next gig. We made an agreement that if things worked out with the fans, I would return. Things were great. The fans gave me enough heat that after the first night, we agreed on a return match. When we chatted, 
The door to this office burst open, and standing before us was a giant of a man. He was so tall that we could barely see his head. (laughs) (laughs) What does that mean? That's pretty tall. Andre had the biggest head. Maybe he was still outside the door. (laughs) He entered by ducking down and coming inside. See, there you go. Another much smaller man was at his side that did much of the talking. Andre spoke a few words in English, so his partner would translate when needed. I sat there almost frozen in my chair. The promoter and Andre talked briefly about tonight's match, and Andre left to go eat. After I calmed down and checked my shorts, I told the promoter he better pay me now. I was not sure what would happen that night, but I never worked with anyone that big. My job was to pick up and body slam Andre that night. (laughs) Right. (laughs) All I could think about was breaking my back. So after much heated discussion, I got my pay in cash and left to go find a local bar. A couple beers later, it was time to head back to the arena. In the dressing room, I tried to chat with Andre and discuss the body slam. He was not sure how to do it, so we walked it through. Before the match, his helper told me Andre was not happy with the body slam, but I informed him that that is what the promoter wants. So he went back to Andre as I finished getting ready. The match was a back-and-forth event. Andre did not sell that much, but when he hit me, I was doing backflips from his clothesline (laughs) in the 70s, by the way. Let me just read that. Right, not even invented yet. After about 10 minutes, the call for the body slam came. In the middle of the ring, I laid a few (laughs) chops into Andre, and I bent down, and I set up for the slam. My right arm went between his legs, and my left arm barely reached up to his shoulder. Andre (laughs) clearly did not want to be slammed because he froze stiff and refused to work with me. After two failed attempts, and some heavy grunting on my part. The third time was the charm. I got Andre up off his feet and turned him around. I got his legs over my head, and I cradled his neck as I brought him down for the intense slam. Uh. This ended up as the finish, as I quickly lay across his chest for the (laughs) pinfall. Right, repeat that part. I didn't want to laugh over that. It was so royal, I couldn't hold it in. Repeat that last part. This ended up as the finish, as I quickly lay across his chest for the pinfall. (laughs) Not sure if I jumped on Andre for the pin, or I fell on him from exhaustion, but the win was mine nonetheless. After a shoot body slam, no less. (laughs) After a shoot body slam on Andre the Giant, who's so big he couldn't see his head, he pinned him. Holy shit. The body slam, we'd always heard that he had claimed that he body slammed Andre, and that was so ridiculous. Because we know all the names of everyone who's ever slammed him. Right. Connect. Race. Not the hangman Bruce Pobans. Right. I never knew that he also claimed that he pinned him in Texas. Right. Right after this happened. As as just a fly-in, by the way. No build-up. Just a drive-in. The hangman. Early in Andre's career, no less. Yes. So this is like 1960, what, like 1968? Andre started wrestling in the late 60s, but this, apparently, according to the hangman, this took place in the 70s. Right, exactly. He's all over the place. Two days later, I met up with Andre again, and I'll tell you, 
He does not forget. My advice is never upset the giant. The match this night was a total disaster for me. Andre did not sell any of my moves, no matter how hard I tried to hit him. And what was a one-sided battle quickly ended in less than two minutes. And what, hold on, is that how the sentence? In what was a one-sided battle quickly ended in less, that's a horrible sentence. I tried to do a flying body press against Andre. (laughs) I slipped (laughs) and fell off him. Or maybe he just swatted me away like an annoying fly. The latter is more like it. Lying flat on my back, looking up at the floodlights, made me wonder what I was doing. Without warning, Andre stepped one leg over my prone body and plopped his butt on my face and chest. I tried to kick out with my legs, but Andre would not have any of it. I was gasping for air and trying to speak, but all I had was this big man's butt in my face and about 500 pounds crashing down on my chest. I do not recall if I gave up or the ref called for the bell, but whatever happened, I was still alive. Barely. The next thing I recall is being strapped down on a stretcher and being wheeled out to the backstage and onto, oh, excuse me, and, and into a waiting ambulance. As they were wheeling me away from the ring, Andre was smiling as he was saying something like, Payback is a bitch. Ah. This this story is so fantastical <laughs> that it's incredible. And you know his his fabulous entertainment career was not just limited to wrestling. You recall? Oh no, we will who get are, to that. Who are, okay, lead me. For the next two days, I was recovering in a local hospital. I checked out of the hospital and made my trip to Japan a little worse for wear. Years later, Andre and I went at it again, and we joked about our first encounter. I learned that even if the promoter demands a body slam and Andre says no, that means Andre does not get slammed. Never mess with the giant. It's like he said, it's like he, he must be a real fan. And he's heard various stories about Andre and he right. just took various aspects from different generic right. stories. And applied oh, could Andre drink? Story. His hand was bigger than the whole beer bottle. I swear to God. He, he had at least 75 beers. that night. Yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, he was one of a kind. He liked me. You mentioned his career Ridiculous. as an entertainer before he got into wrestling. Apparently, he had a pretty storied career as an entertainer as well. Quite varied. Worked with John Belushi numerous times, if I recall. Mm-hmm. He's like, he placed it. How does he phrase it in the book? He's like, I worked with uh, famous actor John Belushi in the Blues Brothers. <laughs> and I also worked with him again in another small role. Like, he puts himself right in. He was like an extra. You know, if he was that. Well, that's nothing. I got to sing with Alice Cooper, Johnny Cash, right. and George Burns. I, I would love to see him on stage with Johnny Cash. I was so envisioning that. I appeared with Kenny Rogers, Dottie West, Little Richard, Styx, and Jerry Lee. He must have worked security. For and some yet, place. exactly. That's the vibe I got. Exactly. Because he's close enough to like have those names. And how specific is this? His one month stint on stage, if you could picture this, as a singer and dancer with Wayne Cochran himself. <laughs> That's right. Of all fucking things. Wayne Cochran Wayne and Cochran. the CC Riders. How funny. Yeah. How funny. Here's a quote that I liked. Out of nowhere, a picture of Gordon Soley in the book. <laughs> I know, with nothing apropos surrounding it. It's like I thought it's going to be a whole thing on Soli, and it segued into something else. Gordon Soli, the dean of pro wrestling, 
The man who talked me back into wrestling after my stroke. Thank oh my you God. And bless you. Hang in there. <laughs> oh my God. See, I was skimming too part. I, I too fast. I didn't even read that caption. Holy shit. Uh, 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 congratulations on your stroke from beyond the grave from Gordon Sully, who couldn't defend himself. That's almost every story in the book. I mean, other than Hulk Hogan, who no one is going to be able to track down and ask about. Right. So if anyone got to him, the last thing they're going to ask about. Other right. than me, it's the first thing I would ask about. But most people, if you get Hulk Hogan, you're not going to go, tell me about the hangman. It's Andre right, the Giant. Right. It's Bobo Brazil. It's Gordon Sully. It's Dick the Bruiser. It's a bunch right. of guys. No <laughs> one can verify any of this. Exactly. Exactly. It's like when I used to work with Chris Dundee. I was his right-hand man. I ran the convention hall. <laughs> you can ask anyone. You can ask anyone that's not living anymore. Yeah, it's outrageous. You know what this is? This is a clear case of wrestling imposter syndrome, also known as Pauli's disease. <laughs> and on a much smaller scale, every town has this guy who may or may not have been in or around the wrestling business, but knows just enough to convince restaurant owners and bar owners that they're somehow affiliated with this glorious world of professional wrestling and they'll walk into luigi's pizza and go hey i'm a wrestler i'm a tv with dusty Rhodes." oh yeah i used to know those guys all those guys they sign an eight by ten they have a belt that they made for themselves that they parade around in and every town has this guy because wrestling is the only business that if you look freaky enough the people won't know the difference it's kind of feasible to them. So they're like, okay, not that we even care, but okay, you're a wrestler. Good for you. Well, plus he's saying he was the masked hangman. He's saying he wore a mask. So how do you, unless you know your stuff, how do you disprove? Because who's going to go? Well, that's genius. Exactly. Yeah. Why would this guy lie to me about this? But that's all he's doing is lying about it. Right, 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 right. It's genius. I, I wore a mask. How glorious to wear a mask in real life. Like, I didn't cheat on you. I, I, the guy had a mask on. Back to the honorees of the CAC. Nominations are in, and I've been informed that April 2005 for the 40th reunion, I have been awarded the honor to stand before my peers and be honored for my years of achievements. <laughs> I will join the ranks of such greats as James Cagney, Mickey Rooney, <laughs> Mickey Rooney, Luthez, the Destroyer, Stu Hart, Kurt Angle, Mike Mazurki, Killer Kowalski, Jimmy Valiant, Mad Dog Vashana, and so many more. I hope I'm still alive many years later to cherish this touching moment. By the way, this touching moment that never happened. Right. Oh, my God. Was James Cagney and Mickey Rooney honored by the CAC? I think in the olden days, they totally were. I do believe so. Like when yeah. it was not a reunion like it is now when it was just it was well, well, it was Hollywood. I think it was City. a way yeah. smaller. I think, yeah, I think it was a way smaller affair. They used to have legit huge Hollywood stars like George Raft and people like that. And, um, you know, the boxing wrestling connection with the, uh, the Olympic and all that. And uh, they were all intertwined in those days. The entertainment, the mob, the, the Olympic. Those L.A. guys, Vandal and Bob Barnett, are so lucky. And, and Dan, hey, Dan, get well. I see you sitting there in the hospital yeah. all during the holidays. Feel well, Dan Farron. Come on, man. Well, hopefully by the time we this show is released, he actually will be out of the hospital and doing well. But, yeah, absolutely. Dan, feel better. Uh, we're all thinking about you right now. And uh, you can't prove Leno right. He's been calling ah, you the late Dan right. Farron for years. You can't prove him right. right. Dan and Superstar Graham, reports of their death are severely uh, overrated. Hey, listen to this one. 
in pro wrestling, as in life, sometimes you are the babyface and sometimes you are the heel. A man I used to know, a singer named Ricky Nelson, released a song that became a major hit. That song was called Garden Party. Ironically, much of what is in that song pertains to things in this book. You see, Ricky Nelson tried to make his comeback at Madison Square Garden. And MSG was where I did my last show before my stroke and was the beginning to my long road back. In the song, he (laughs) uses the saying, you can't please everyone, so you got to please yourself. And I think that's exactly what this book is. It's the hangman pleasing himself. (laughs) Close to 300 pages. And again, that may sound like a daunting read. Literally, it's two paragraphs per page. I've never seen less. Yeah, it's like a, it's like a children's yeah. book. Yeah. A singer I used to know, Ricky Nelson. Another guy who's oh, dead and can't verify any of this. Incredible. Poor Johnny Cash gets his name dismerched. I first met Terry. So my Hulk Hogan here. I first met Terry in a club on Sunset Beach in Florida. He was playing in a band. I used to make some guest appearances in this club and get on stage and sing. So I was well known there. That was my first dealings with the future superstar, the one and only Hulk Hogan. Mm-hmm. Again, this is another fantastic part of the story we didn't know before. Not only did he know Hogan before he was in wrestling, he used to get up on stage and sing with him. Right. He was so well known in this club, in Sunset Right. Beach. So now he's known in Texas, he's known in Tampa. He worked with Andre earlier in his career. So 1970 tops. Then you got Hogan, like 1974, singing in the bars, tops. Well, the other interesting thing is he slammed Andre. And again, the timeline of the book is all over the place because I think he says the bruiser discovers him in like the mid-70s. So that throws things off. But let's just say hypothetically it's true. Let's just say the hangman body slammed Andre the Giant and pinned him, let's say 75, right? Right. I, I would assume a younger man in good shape. Years later, here's what he says. There was one time we were trying to teach the students how to do a body slam. One of the students was James, a little man in size, but big in heart. We mentioned that anyone can learn to give anyone a body slam. The class joked that the little show, I guess that's his name, the guy, could not do body slams. Yokozuna and I decided to prove our point by me, the hangman, picking up and body slamming the over 800-pound Yokozuna. Oh, right. The class was floored by what they saw until we did right. it again. And this time took it slow and explained how each other helped in this feat. Later that day, the little show body slammed me. This was one day in class that all right. had a memorable experience. Have you ever... <laughs> Brian, have you ever been next to Yokozuna? Yes, actually. and He's the size of a fucking banquet table. You couldn't... He was the size of an elephant, not a baby elephant. He was the biggest person I've ever been next to. Forget it. Well, he not only slammed him, but he slammed him a second time slowly to show... <laughs> exactly, just to, right, to show the real technique. <laughs> I mean, Jesus Christ, if you had a crane, you couldn't body slam Yokozuna. Jesus Christ. I don't know how Yokozuna got around, by the way. I had sushi with him one night, the night when Samu set my friend's napkin on fire. Um, (laughs) Yokozuna was so tremendous 
I really, this is honest, at the time I thought, how does he even get dressed, much less work? Because just his outfit, I envisioned each part of it coming on, and I'm like, okay, you got the underneath tights, and he's just gigantic, and I'm like, then he has to pull on those Oriental-style tights. I know Oriental is a taboo word, but I think it applies here. You know, like all the Japanese wrestlers wear the tights that end of the knee. I don't know how that became a Japanese wrestling trademark. Little Tokyo has to wear it. Mr. Saito always wore it. The, they cut off at the knee. Japanese style. <laughs> anyway, and I'm envisioning it like, oh, he has to pull on those tights, the poor guy. I can't really, I can't really tell you people, he was humongous. Was he not the biggest person you ever saw up close, fat-wise? Yeah, absolutely. And that's before he was at his biggest, by the way. I'm talking like 1994. I, that's when I hung out with him, yeah. Like 90, I probably like 92, 93. Maybe early, early 90s for sure. And yeah, I just couldn't believe how he got around. Oh, but he got around when Fat Mel threw up. Oh, he jumped up then. He was across the room like a mouse. He was agile. I had to give him that because I was stuck. I was frozen like in a, in a graphic novel, like, holy shit, my worlds are colliding. Samu H-bombs my friend Fat Mel. Fat Mel starts throwing up in the sushi place. And I'm looking at it in slow motion. And Yokozuna and Tatanka and Crush were across the room by the bathroom, just horrified, scarred for life. So, I mean, he moved when he had to, apparently. He was quicker than me. Well, here's another passage from the book, Howard. And we'll wrap this <laughs> up pretty soon. Recently, December 2002... I answered the call and accepted a role as a Christian evangelist. October 2002, I answered an altar call at the First African Missionary Baptist Church in Kingsland, Georgia. My wife answered the call, and while she was standing there, a few minutes later, I agreed to join her and answer the call. My wife's sister and her husband used to belong to this same church. They are still involved here, but now he received a calling to help lead another flock. Uh, let me fast forward a little bit. Two months later, I was watching two of my friends on TV. They are Ted DiBiase and Nikita Koloff. They mm. are both in the wrestling business like me, and they are now Christian evangelists. Two friends of his that he saw on TV. <laughs> mm -hmm. And he decided to adopt their story. I mean, he decided to talk about right. it here. I like how he left Superstar and Jake out of it, at least. <laughs> well, hold on. <laughs> There's a list of other wrestlers here. Let's see. Oh, I did see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Million Dollar Man, DiBiase, Heartbreak Kid, Shawn Michaels, The Road Warriors, George Animal Steel, Sting, Nikita Koloff, Superstar Billy Graham, Terry Taylor, Jesse Hernandez, and Greg the Hammer Valentine, just to name a few. Is Greg the Hammer right. Valentine religious? Well, uh, personally, in my relationship with Christ, he's one of the first people that I think of when I'm, in a, <laughs> when I'm, when I'm so inclined. I don't know. I, didn't, I had never heard that he was one of those guys now. This book is amazing. And by the way, according <laughs> to this, I believe he's saying it's 1974 that Dick the Bruiser discovered him. Yeah, he's all over the place. He's discovered before he body slammed Andre the Giant. You know what's disappointing? Like, if you're going to make up a story, you could be a lot more creative with it. You know what I mean? Like, it's, like I said, it's just it's general right. stories he's taken and applied to himself. Right. Oh, we were right. so poor on the road, we had to sleep in the car. And right. Oh, we had a thing called the baloney blowout. Because like, when we were yeah. on the road, we had baloney, only enough money for a loaf of bread and baloney. Right. You know what's hilarious? I actually overheard somebody saying that to his girlfriend at the CAC as they were going into the actual baloney blowout. 
And he was good. He said exactly what you just said to her. He goes, the college is because in the old days, we used to have just a loaf of bread and some bologna and a case of beer. So you want to guess who that might be? Who? It's David. Um, <laughs> there's no build up to that. Sorry. <laughs> that was uh Cuban assassin, David Sierra. He was explaining that to his, uh, his woman as we walked into the Polony banquet. Now he didn't break into the business until the eighties, right? Or was he wrestling in the seventies? Um, probably broke in 80 ish. Cause he was on mid Atlantic TV by 82 as a Gia Zabra. And I like how also whenever he talks about any of these guys that passed away, he throws in his expression, bless you, Dick, the bruiser. You talk right. a lot about this business. And every time I step in the ring, I think of you and the heartfelt love you had for this business and the wrestling fans all over the world. Hang in there, brother. Right. Someday oh, by I'll- the way, I love his fucking catchphrase. Hang in there, brother. Cause I can't not imagine it in the voice of the hormone monster from, um, big mouth. <laughs> Hang in there, brother. <laughs> what you got? What you gonna do, baby? Hang in there, brother. Totally. What do you Ridiculous. think? The, what do you think of the idea? Uh, let's take Bruce Pobans out of the equation, of a masked heel hangman, and his catchphrase is <laughs> "Hang in there." Right. <laughs> well, he's an inspirational heel. You know, that's a that's a subgenre that's not explored as often. The inspirational heel. Hang in there, baby. There's a whole photo <laughs> section here. The photo section right. has to be seen to be believed because it's just. There are no photos of him during this illustrious career. There are photos of him, right? Like in 2003, being inducted into the Boogie Wrestling, I think it's BWC. It's whatever it is, Jimmy Valiant's Hall of Fame, I believe. For the guys, he they're treated. very, they're very selective. I understand. There's a whole section here about Cactus Jack being his friend. I question. Right. I love, I love how everything revolves around his stroke. It's like, congratulations on your stroke, man. Hang in there. It's like every person, like Ole Anderson's like, happy stroke. Do you think he like came to after his stroke and like his family just trying <laughs> to like make him happy? Like, yes, you were a wrestler. You body oh, slammed Andre the be? Giant. <laughs> how funny would that be? Oh, your, my God. Your last that's the match movie before right your there. stroke was at Madison Square Garden. <laughs> <laughs> that's the... <laughs> That's the movie right there. That's a million-dollar idea. I wonder if we could improve upon this, like the hangman story. If we could take some of the loose principles. <laughs> to, to play, I don't to see st- how you could fail to improve upon it. <laughs> if we take these loose principles. <laughs> I don't story, think you could make it any worse. <sighs> special salute, Dick the Bruiser, the man who introduced me to the world of pro wrestling. Rest in peace, <laughs> my friend. Hang in there. <laughs> He's dead. Can't hang in there. <laughs> Should have said that before he died. This this book is something else. And again, it's 304 pages, almost nothing on these pages. Incredible. We got to find out that he actually print this book up and give it to people or sell it. Um, you know, I remember him having booths at various CACs that I attended and seems to me that the book was real, that it was, uh, there's actual copies of it. It, you know, my memory is not to be trusted, but, um, kind of seems to me he had these eight by tens and, uh, I believe he had his book, which is so ironic because you have all these guys, all these journeymen throughout wrestling who could have done a great version of that book. And here's this guy who is nothing who wrote the book. What do you think of the balls? Of showing up, like it's one thing to do this in high, right? But it's another thing right. to do this and then show up at CAC until they ask you not to come back. 
Right. That would be like me. That would be like me going to Nam as you know, like uh, Josh Winger or somebody. Hey, man, it's me. I don't. I, that's crazy. It's. I mean, where do you get the? But you know, at the time, the standard for the CAC was weird because Paul Lee struts around there like a world champion. I mean, it's just it's, but he, it's but, an but, odd. But, but hold on, he struts around there like Nature Boy Paul Lee, like whatever we want to say. Right. At least he is who he like. It's not like he's someone who's never wrestled. Right, no right, 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 right. He has been Nature right. Boy Paul Lee for good or for bad for a long period of time. <laughs> but they're the super right. tramps. They're the Hangman Bruce Pobans. I remember Jeff Walton talked about. It. I think him and Victor Rivera were at some reunion at Vern Langdon's place years ago when they met the fake Bo Ramos. Like think of oh, the balls. No way. Think of the balls of showing up at a wrestler's reunion and pretending. Oh my god! I remember that now. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, that's balls exactly. Well, exactly. There it is. Well, there's a lot of pretenders out there. The long elusive book, hang in there. The story of the hangman Bruce Pobans. Hopefully, book two will be out. I'd like to know what happened in between all of these moments between the Andre match. And the Yokozuna body slam. What else happened? Because there's a lot well, of holes. so many, so many historic moments. You know, the book is only so big if you're going to self-publish. Where's the Ric Flair chapter? All right. Oh, I worked with Rick. He was a great champion. <laughs> a lot of people think he was great. He was great night after night. He was also a party animal. Like it, it's oh yeah, every general thought. Dusty had a big ego. He never wanted to put <laughs> me over. Jimmy Valiant was surprisingly very quiet in real life. You'd be amazed at the 90-degree transformation in personality from the wild man he portrayed on screen. I would show up at the studios at TBS, and the red light would go on the camera, and I knew it was time. I had to go out there and deliver a promo. Right. Like never. <laughs> Gordon Sully, the Dita Pro Wrestling, the man who talked me back into wrestling after my stroke. Right. How did he Thank do you, that? Gordon. By the way, Gordon was losing his voice in 1998. Yeah. When was the stroke? That's a good question. Such a uh, critical part of his story, of his hero's journey. <laughs> There's a lot of questions. Well, Howard, we're about to move on with the show. Anything you want to plug? Anything you want to say to the listeners here? Before we move hey on. Hey guys, I wouldn't even be making this announcement because I've made premature announcements before and I've made a fool of myself. Well, here it is. WrestleMania season in April. Howard Baum and Hardway Art are going to be representing all over the Tampa scene. And we are going to also make our presence known at the CAC. Things are finally happening to the point that they're going to be available to the public in a timely and very cool manner. So I urge you to check out Hardway Art on the Facebook right now. Website will be here by WrestleMania. Before you know it, blink of an eye. So you can also friend me on Facebook, Howard Baum, B-A-U-M. Check me out on the Twitter. And of course, Tuesday through Thursday nights, I am fully nude on the Chatterbait. <laughs> so in all sincerity, thank you again. Thank you, Brian, for giving me this platform. And a whole new, you know, life in wrestling. And all you guys out there, all my CAC friends that I party with personally one-on-one, -on -one, all my 605 people who, at the very least, uh, tolerate me, thank you all. And all my co-hosts on the 605, Scott, and all you guys. So just thank you, everybody. I've had a very lovely holiday season. 
and I hope that you guys did too. And a happy and wealthy 2020. Hang in there, Howard. (laughs) Well, Howard, while you're hanging in there, we don't want to keep the listeners hanging too much longer. So let's get going with the rest of the show. But first, a word about our friends, the wrestling fans over at Ramsore Records. And let's hear some music. How about that? That sets the tone nice and relaxing. I really love the sound of this. What you are hearing is someone we've talked about in the past here on the show. You may remember the album Run, Skeleton Run by David Childers. Well, this is his newest album, Interstate Lullaby. You're hearing the song Flow on River. And what a great sound this is. Of course, everything that comes out of Ramsor Records isn't just filled with great artists, but great sounds. So much attention is paid to making sure that the sound is great. And this is another winner from Ramsor Records. You can get a copy today of David Childers' new album, Interstate Lullaby, by going to ramsorrecords.kungfustore.com. Once again, ramsorrecords.kungfustore.com. R-A-M-S-E-U-R, Ramsor Records. Of course, the mid-Atlantic wrestling of the music industry. It's going to be really hard to keep going with this show and not just continue listening to this because... I like this, and if you think this is good, you should really hear the rest of the album. David Childers' Interstate Lullaby. It is endorsed by the Super Podcast. Check it out today. But with that, I'm going to keep playing this as I do the introduction. Let's go to our next segment. We had a chance to speak with Roger Smith. You may remember him as Dirty Rhodes or The Assassin, many different names. And, of course, he was a tag team partner with Randy Colley, who just recently passed away, Moondog Rex, Detroit Demolition, one of the assassins as well. So many gimmicks, so many great moments in the wrestling business, and we're going to spend a few minutes talking about them with his former partner, Roger Smith. Let's go to this right now. Never did leave, now it's 30 years gone. I am happy today to welcome back to the Super Podcast, Roger Smith, a man you may know as many different names, including Dirty Roads, but today specifically we're going to talk about his life and career as an assassin and one of his associates as an assassin. This sounds really devious as we say it here at the beginning, but Roger, thanks for being here again today. Hey, it's my pleasure, Brian. Glad to be here. I can help out. Tell you a little stories about Randy. Yeah, well, we're going to talk about Randy Colley. A lot of people know him as Moondog Rex. A lot of people may know him as the Nightmare or the Champion, Detroit Demolition, but Really, the first thing that put him on the map was being one of the assassins, and I know that he teamed up with Jody Hamilton for a brief period of time, as you did as well, and then, of course, you guys got together. When did you first meet Randy? It was, I think it was in 1974 or early 75, met him in Pensacola. He was in uh, Pensacola, and he was working down there as uh, Jack Dalton or something like that, and they were doing the lookalike they had... uh, Rip Tyler there was doing a Rip Tyler lookalike, and he had uh, I'd went down there and worked a week or two, and I'd met him there, and he had just broke into business, and uh, he was the champion of everything and everybody, and he, he was uh, living out there, and he was met him out there, he was on the end of the beach out there, he was in his car there where he slept there a little bit, and he just had broke into business, wasn't making a whole lot of money, and uh, I thought you need to. Give them some of them trophies back to get with it, you know what I mean? But anyway, that's the first time I ever met him. 
But the second time, now the second time I met, this is real interesting. I'm going to go ahead and go with this thing. The second time I met Randy was, uh, you know, I was in Ron Fuller's territory. Don Carson and I were a team there. And Ron Fuller had bought the Pensacola territory. And the crew of us were going to go down to Pensacola. I was working as an assassin with Don Carson. They brought Randy in and did an underneath job. And Ron Fuller talked to me about working with him. He said, can you work with this young man? I said, well, yeah, we can. So Randy and I went... Well, Randy went on back, and, and I went ahead and finished out there. Then we, the whole crew moved to Pensacola, and Randy and I became a team with Billy Spears and manager. And uh, how, how Randy and I became real, real, really close friends, when Jody and I worked as the assassin team in Atlanta, Randy was working uh, as an electrician in Phoenix City, Alabama. So Wednesday nights we'd run Columbus, Georgia, and Randy would come in by a ringside seat to watch us. And he was telling me that story, and, you know, we joked around. I said, well, you thought you could whoop me. That's why you got in the business. And we had a big laugh about that. But he was really, uh, Randy was great. I ended up meeting his whole family, and uh, we can go into that, you know, but a little bit more about Randy. He was, he, he, we become partners, and we uh, pioneered that territory. We had to resettle that thing, and it was tough, and it was crazy. But, you know, it was uh it was uh, it was real good and funny when David Schultz and Don Carson and myself and that whole Knoxville crew there. I'll tell you a real funny story about him and David. I, we lived apartments apart a block or so, and I went up to their apartment one morning. And Don Carson and I was there, and we'd all working out. They were well. Here come David and Randy, and Randy was jogging around the apartments, and David Schultz was running circles around him. You know, we were laughing and carrying on, but anyway, he finally we stopped and had talking. I said, "Well, David, you wasn't getting a good workout." He, and he said, well, I can outrun him anyway. David said, you can't outrun me. Well, to make a long story short, they lined up, and Randy smoked him in a 50-yard dash. <laughs> that big old fat boy could run, man. I mean, but, yeah, and later on, you know, we, you, we were both into Knoxville. We went to uh, Jerry's territory, went as assassins, and uh, we were only there for a little bit. Then uh, he had left and went ahead and teamed up and became the Moon Dogs, and he came back to Nashville there, and I lived right outside of Nashville. We spent a lot of time together. It was Donnie and I were working, and Randy and Larry were working as the Moon Dogs, and we were working as Assassins. But let me take a step back because you brought up Pensacola. You were there when the Fields brothers still owned it, and then you were there when Ron Fuller decided to open a southern end to his territory. He had Knoxville, and then he had Pensacola. What was it like? What was it, the differences between Pensacola under the Fields brothers and Pensacola under Ron Fuller? Ooh, a lot of difference. I mean. When I was there, I, let me let me let me be fair with the Fields brothers. It was the latter part. I mean, they I don't know the territory hadn't really wasn't really doing that well. You know, with the guys who were older and stuff like that, it hadn't really hit the hit the cycle. So when Ron went down there, it just it we like I said, we had to uh, we had to pioneer that sucker. We had to fight every night. The marks. I mean, it was crazy. I mean, we had so much heat. Uh, I mean, we had riots. I mean, it was just, it was just nuts. And the buildings filled up, and we were drawing money. You know, it's but yeah, it was crazy. We were Randy and I were we were did a deal one night with Billy Spears, and they got him hurt. And we was trying to get him out of the billionaire in in Dothan, Alabama, in that big old farm center. And they had, they had us trapped in with cars. and had a car block, and it had one of those uh, deals where you had to have a key to undo the the lock and the wheels and stuff. Randy just reached in and jerked that sucker out of the, <laughs> out of the gear and rolled it down out of the way, and we just took right on out of the place. You know. But we had to fight all the time down there. A, a really good story is the, the, the police, they were on our side because they had a bunch of thugs, really, is what, you know, what the fans were. Some of them were. But uh, a boy 
jumped there one night on Billy Spears, and he broke down into a karate stance, and Billy broke down into a karate stance. <laughs> well, man, the crowd erupted, and I told Randy, oh, God, he's going to get killed. So Randy bailed out of the ring, and when Randy bailed out of the ring, the guy ran, and he sashayed under the ropes. They had a rope around the ring, and he sashayed under that rope, and he did. He started to turn around. In the meantime, I pitched Randy the tag belt, and when that guy turned around, Randy baseballed him with that bat. Whop! And the cops came to us and told him, man, it took five or six cars to get him every time. We just call you next time to go get him. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, was, it was tough, man, but, you know, the territory was on fire. Well, let's talk about the gimmick. Let's talk about being an assassin. Both of you teamed up with Jody Hamilton, who many people consider the assassin. You know, him and Tom Ernesto started as the assassins, and then Tom retired, and Jody kept on with the gimmick, having different tag team partners at different times. Did Jody right. ever have an issue with you guys being the assassins without him? Not that I know of. No, nothing was happening. I mean, Jody's never said nothing to me about it. I mean, see, Jody worked after after Jody and I were partners. I was there when the split came, when right there with the Uncle Deal, and Tom had put me over in a lot of matches. You know, with, you know, to, to get me over with Jody, and we, we drew we drew super big. I mean, people lined up around the buildings down the streets to get in to see Jody and I. So, you know, how much heat did the assassins have in Georgia? Oh shit. <laughs> they'd throw bottles at me, man. I'd, they'd have to, I'd drive into the back of the old auditorium, and I had to jump out of my car, and they'd have to get around me, the police would, and they'd throw everything they could at me. They, Tom Renesto had me on fire. When, we, when I split the team, so to speak, down there, we did a deal, and they called me the enforcer. And I, I was sort of like I split the team. Let me give a dog arrow. Tom did a series of matches with me. We'd do boxing matches. We'd do all kinds of things, and he'd put me over, you know what I mean? And it, it, it was just super hot, you know. Rock Hunter was the manager, and it was hot. Yeah. So you guys are the assassins working for Ron Fuller. How did you get into Memphis? How did you get into Jarrett's company? Uh, I left Ron Fuller's territory and went to Bill Watts' territory with Jody. And I got, during Christmas over, I got my knee hurt and got my nose broke. And I went home at, at, uh back to my family after Christmas, and I never did go back to the territory in, in uh, Louisiana. And that's, from there I came back into uh, Knoxville, and that's when we went, me and Randy went in there again it's, at that period of time. It was right between, like, from the time we went to down there, and Randy and I had separated in uh, Dothan, and I went to Louisiana, and I don't know where Randy went from there. I think he hung around there with Don Carson and Billy Spears and those guys. And then I came from my parents' house, and uh, had I can't remember exactly what happened. Randy and I got together, and I met Randy at his home in Alexander City, Alabama. And we went to uh, his family and my family. We went to Knox, or to Memphis together. How did you like Memphis for that run? It was shaky that first run. It, we, I wasn't there but a couple weeks, and we couldn't get the money right, to be honest. And then, But after that, I stayed there 10, 12 years ago. I had a house and everything out there. I had a farm and... You know, I bought property and stuff. But, yeah, I love the Memphis territory. Do you remember when Randy got the call to get his opportunity in the World Wrestling Federation? Yes, I do. He just went and done it. Uh, I remember when he, not so much as when he got that call to go there, but, he, you know, I knew that because uh, through the grapevine. But after that, he had moved back. Like I said, when he came back into the territory, him and Larry as the Moondogs, and Donnie and I were there as the Assassins, that's when Randy had developed. He came to my house, and I had a, a house in Westmoreland, and he came to my house. That's when he was developing that Axe and Smash gimmick. 
and we were working on the the gimmick, the outfit, you know, because my wife does that kind of stuff, and we were we were, actually we, we were developed right there in that house. So, well, that that ended I mean, up being part of a lawsuit with him and yeah, Randy, Randy, he, filed a lawsuit. he did that, man. I watched it. We de- I, so help me if I never get up out of my seat. I watched the boy develop that in my house. We were talking about he, you know, how he had that belt and that cross stuff and all that that gimmick that they put on that, you know. <laughs> we was laughing. I mean, me and my wife were laughing, but it's a good gimmick. Yeah. To be honest, we thought it was burlesque, you know. We thought, hey, man, that's a good deal, you know. Yeah, he needs a necktie or a bow tie, you know what I mean? But, no, it was a good gimmick, and they, they actually ripped him off for it. Yeah. <laughs> you know how it works. Yeah, you know, and I believe there was a lawsuit later on with him and Bill Eady claiming they owned the gimmick, and Vince McMahon claimed he developed and owned the gimmick, and... Everyone seems to agree the fact that Vince McMahon did not create the gimmick. Vince McMahon just inherited the gimmick from the yes, guys he that did. for him. Man, so help me. Hey, I was in Pakistan with Bill years ago, but anyway, that's another story. But him and Randy did that because Randy came to Knox, uh, to Mass, Nashville to my home, and, and he was scouting out the stuff and everything, and that's how it all started. I mean, so help me it was. But, man, he was a super guy. His family was a super family. We'd go fishing. We'd go up here. His family had a big barge out on the lake up there at, lake, at the lake there. We'd go up and spend the night out and crappy fish all night, me and him and my wife. And we had a blast, man. Randy's, Randy's good people. What can you tell me about Randy in the ring? What was, what was it about him that stood out? What was it about him that people maybe that if they aren't in the ring, they wouldn't notice that made him so good? I don't know. He was just dedicated. You know, he was, he was just dedicated. I mean, he, he worked hard on his body. He worked hard on his on on everything. He you know he wanted to input man. He was great at input. Randy was he was he had booking skills. You know what I mean? He learned the business from bottom up. He didn't he didn't leave nothing out. And I've 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 heard statements and stuff from him, and it was true because I know him personally. He would he would have done it over ten thousand times, and he didn't understand why nobody wouldn't have been able to be a wrestler. You know what I mean? It was just the greatest thing. I could still see him, man. I know I'm getting flight of ideals. I could still see him standing and grilling in his in his trunks and, and just declaring it was the best thing in his, in his whole life. You know what I mean? And this man was a certified electrician, master electrician, all that. You know what I mean? But he loved wrestling, man. That's that's the thing. Did stand? I mean, the drive in him made him good. Did he enjoy being a moon dog? Man, as far as I know, he never did. Yeah, he loved it. Yeah, God, they loved that gimmick. Him and Larry, they were they were they were good buddies too. You know, him and Larry. We when we when they come in that territory, it'd be me and Larry and him, and we'd all get. We had a big van. We all drove together. That's we were just like brothers. I mean, gosh, it's yeah, it's, <laughs> Randy's special guy, man. He was he was go getter. He didn't uh, he he wouldn't take no for an answer. You know what I mean? He just Easy to work with, easy to learn, and you know. To be fair to Randy, when I when I was a little more experienced when Randy got as a team with me, and uh, it took a little bit to get him to to tone in to see what was actually going on. But man, it it just clicked, you know. It just you know how young guys sometimes are herky jerky, miss a spot or you know step up here or step over there a little bit late. Yeah. But once the flow started, oh my gracious, it was like just a, a flower blooming all of a sudden. You know what I mean? And, the tag part, the tag team stuff, we just, we worked great. I mean, probably the tag team, me and Randy had more stuff down than any other, me and Donnie or me and Jody. Me and Randy had more spots and stuff, I mean, that we could pull off and do as a 
And I can't say it about Jody or Randy. I mean, they were all, I mean, Jody was the master of that stuff. You know what I mean? Did you stay in touch with Randy after uh, you guys both retired? And when did you hear the news and how did you hear the news of his passing? Well, uh, I stayed in touch and I lost in touch with him there for about five, six years, something like that. And I saw him at Scott Teal's at a reunion and he, he didn't seem like he was altogether good then. And uh, I lost touch with him again, and then his his first wife uh, informed me. She texted me and said that he was in the nursing home and wasn't doing good, and and that's how it all started. And it just didn't take two weeks, and he was gone. So, Roger, we appreciate you giving us a few minutes today. In closing, how will you best remember Randy Colley? <laughs> oh Jesus, I don't know, man. You put tears in my eyes now. Oh Lord. friend and I don't know man I can't it's hard there's so many things I could say but really one of a kind special one of a kind person I I'm like can I do it all over again with it you know what I mean There it is, a friend of the show, Roger Smith, paying tribute to his friend, Randy Colley, his friend and his partner. And we're really happy that we were able to spend a few minutes speaking with Roger here this week on the show. And, of course, on the topic of wrestlers who just recently passed away, Izzy Slapowitz, a name that fans of ICW may remember. He was there for a long time, the manager of the Devil's Duo. He was also a wrestler, not just a manager. And we wanted to spend a few minutes talking about him and his career. And who better to do that with than the hustler, Rip Rogers, a friend of the show, back here this week. He's going to talk about Izzy and where he was with him, working for the Culkins, working for ICW. There's always wrestling history mixed in with these segments, and you're going to hear a lot here about Izzy Slapowitz and ICW. Let's go to this segment right now. I am very happy to welcome back to the Super Podcast today. Rip Rogers, and we're going to talk a little bit about someone who he worked with in ICW, the late Izzy Slapowitz, who of course just passed away, Jeff Smith. But Rip, thanks for being back on the show here today. Uh, it's your pleasure, I'm sure. Well, it certainly is, and I'm sure it'll be the listener's pleasure as well. Let's talk a little bit about Izzy Slapowitz. Do you remember when you first met him? Uh, let's see. It was I went down. It was right after, right after New Year's in 1979. Angelo Popo, the miser, Randy's daddy, he, I had left Nashville and he talked to Frankie Kane, who was the great Mephisto, who was the booker in the Mississippi territory that the Calkins ran. And, uh, so every week we ran, uh, Jackson, Greenville, Greenwood, uh, Gulfport, Vicksburg every week. So you had to know how to wrestle. Now, when I was there, let's see. Uh, I'd gotten their number from the Freebirds who come to work over to Nashville and they were teenagers and uh, they said, I'd do good over there and get to work every day. So Angelo called him up and then Frankie King, he's the guy that gave me the name Rip Rogers because Eddie Graham was the original Rip Rogers in Texas in 1955. And he said, I reminded him of Eddie Graham. So I said, Oh, hell that's good. So I was, I had four names in my career, and uh, the last one was Rip Rogers, so I've been Rip Rogers since 1979, so what the hell, right? And when I got there, 
uh, when I got there, uh, I met Izzy Slapowitz. Izzy had worked for Frankie Kane when he was the booker for Leroy McGurk in the Oklahoma Territory before Watts had it. So it was uh, me, Izzy, Ralph Derryberry, who was Big Boy Williams, and Shooter Rick Connors. We all lived in the motel in Jackson, Tennessee. So Izzy was one of my roommates. So he was from Brooklyn, and so he had that. Uh, he was the world's biggest wrestling fan, and he had that funny accent. He could talk uh, with this and that. So Izzy was my manager there. And then uh, a couple of years later, uh, he come in to work in ICW. So he was my manager there for a while in ICW too. So me and Izzy got some history. And the last time I saw him, I did a a wrestling seminar in New York City for Mike Mondo, who was one of the Spirit Squad. And all of a sudden I hear that I hear his I hear him call me a redneck pencil neck schlemiel or whatever. And we started laughing and then so I had a our bullshit session with him, uh telling stories, talking about this and not in uh New York City and that was the last time I actually uh uh pretty much I talked to him a long time there. What was it like in 1979 in Mississippi? Because obviously the Culkins had been local promoters for Leroy McGurk and Bill Watts, and then they broke off and ran mm-hmm. opposition. Was the company doing well? What was it like running against the, at that time, I think it was still the NWA office because Bill Watts had not fully broken off from Leroy yet and run away with Louisiana and Mississippi. Well, George was like, a, he was then politically strong. So we were in Greenville every week, Greenwood every week. Gulfport, which is right outside Biloxi, Vicksburg, Jackson. And it was, my gosh, you go out there and it, they were rapid wrestling fans. It was a great place to learn. And a lot of veterans were there. Kamala was there. He was, when he was there, he was Ugly Bear Harris. And then he turned baby face and he became Sugar Bear Harris. <laughs> so, <laughs> but he had to turn because Percy Pringle was his manager and he beat, beat him on TV. And his wife was going to beat him up and everything. So he had to uh, turn babyface. I remember he, uh, Kamala won a battle royal and he supposedly won $2,000. His wife was wanting to go out and buy new tires on the truck. And, uh, <laughs> anyway, so he actually slept over on our floor a couple of times. So he didn't want to, uh, he was too scared to go over with <laughs> But he was just a really, really nice guy. And then a couple of years, well, held it in the like 1983, and uh, there he was as Kamala for Bill Watts, and uh, and uh, and that's the way the story goes. So it was it was Ralph, me, Izzy, Rick Connors, all living in Jackson together. So you can imagine the shit that went along there. Was he already Izzy Slapowitz? Had he already developed the name, and did he ever tell you where the name came he was, from? Yeah, uh, he was Izzy Slapowitz. Now, when he worked for Frankie in in Leroy's old territory in Oklahoma, he was Ilya Zimovich. It wasn't quite as bad. Uh, <laughs> but then all of a sudden he became Izzy Slapowitz in, uh, in Mississippi. And then when he worked for us in ICW, he was Izzy Slapowitz because he was working for Garvin and them in in Knoxville when they broke off from Ron Fuller and he come in and big boy worked. He was, he come in too, and he worked. 
So that was how. So I was with Izzy in uh, ICW, and then I was with, and then uh, he was working for All Star, and then they sort of come into ICW and joined us. So we were all the outlaws there. So uh, that's how that's how Izzy got in, and that's how I stayed connected with Izzy. You lived with him for a while in Mississippi. Did you ever get his backstory? How did he break into the business? How was he trained? He just told me he was the world's biggest fan, and he used to go to Sunnyside Garden in New York. And the the guys would know him because he was the most obnoxious fan, and he had that accent. <laughs> and he he was one of the guys that loved the heels, and people didn't do that then. But he just he just loved all the heels, and that was how he got that was how he got into wrestling business. So a lot of unique stories there. So let's fast forward a little bit. ICW, of course, like you said, he worked for All Star against Ron Fuller, and that's really where mm-hmm. the Bob Roop camp and the Pafo camp came together. Once he comes up to ICW, did he fit in right away? Well, hell, we were all a bunch of misfits. So we we weren't there to judge anybody. We was uh, happy and lucky to have anybody that would work for us because of the threatening of being blackballed, which was at that time was a pretty good, uh, you were sort of scared of, but hell, uh, if you couldn't get a job anyway, what the hell, right? <laughs> what, what do you thought when we were, when we were uh, with ICW, we ran against Ron Fuller. We ran against Dick the Bruiser. Uh, we ran uh, against Vern Gagne. We ran against Jerry Jarrett. We ran against Nick Goulas. We ran against Jim Barnett. Uh, we didn't. We didn't give a shit who you were. We ran against everybody. So, and Bob Geigel too. So it was. It was funnier than hell. And pretty much ended up ended up working for everybody else too. So if you could, that's like uh, Roop and uh, and Orton. They went off and they left ICW. Because now all of a sudden, what they did was, we, they thought they should have been making more money, whatever, blah blah blah. Then you get in the wrestling business, and you see that oh, there's all these expenses. We had to. I remember this is like 1979. We had to draw thirteen thousand dollars a week to break even for minimal payroll, TV bills, and stuff like that. So all of a sudden. When you're just one of the boys, you don't know that shit. But when you're in the office, you're paying for posters, you're paying for insurance, you're paying for uh, van upkeep, ring stuff, insurance, ring repair, et cetera, stuff like that. You need to have the money to pay for uh, the poster, everything up front. So when we was ICW, we all took money and threw it in and had a $100,000 kitty like. And then Angelo said, okay, if we have to dip into it or something all he wanted to do was wrestle and have where he's, he could work with his kids too so we threw that money in there so he had a hundred thousand dollars working capital to work with but when uh you said oh we should have got this whatever blah 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 we hardly made any money now we ran rough arena in lexington where jarrett's run and you draw ten thousand dollars and that's a lot of money you're looking at a three four and five dollar ticket price and we barely made enough money because of expenses. And then after a couple of years, you see that as a promoter, the promoters wanted to take, hell, the boys got it made. Hell, the boys made more money than I did as an owner. 
but all I did was sit there and shut up and uh, just wanted to wrestle and learn the business. If you needed to make $13,000 a week to break even, how many weeks did you actually break even? Well, a lot of weeks we didn't break even. So the miser kept dipping into the till. He kept paying for everything. So then he bought two $33,000 diesel vans, Iveco diesel vans, one for baby face and one for the heels. So we wouldn't burn our cars up. And then he, he bought a $33,000 ring truck. And this is like 1980. So that's a lot of money to pull out. And they say, well, he was so tight. Well, the reason he was tight, he was, he was born during the depression and, uh, he didn't have running water and electricity, and he was an only child, so he was determined not to be poor, so he saved all of his money. And Izzy was a part of all of that. <laughs> well, in terms of Izzy, I think people probably best remember him in ICW for being the manager of the Devil's Duo. Do you remember how that was put together? Well, it was now Angelo Papo. He was the original Devil's Duo with him and Chris Markoff working for Dick the Bruiser, and Bobby Heenan was their manager. And that's when Angelo was, uh, now he was a part-time wrestler and worked for Ganyan, worked for Bruiser part-time. All the time, the boys, Randy and Lanny, were in school until Lanny graduated. And then, Lan then he went back on the road again. So here he was in Downers Grove, Illinois, as a PE teacher with bleach blonde hair. But then, but that was the original Devils duo. And then we got... Uh, Jeff Sword out of the ICW wrestling school, which is a story in itself. And then Doug Vines was trained, I think, by Tojo uh, with Nick Goulas. And then when he was a young boy, and they put them together, and Izzy was a mouthpiece, and uh, they learned they learned to work every day. And and you pick it up, and you learn how to do it. You know how to do stuff that's safe. You know how to work. You can pull time with anybody, and you become good. And they were young boys in their twenties working with the older guys. And and they learned, and once you learn it, you got that son of a bitch down. But Izzy was a big part of that. Izzy was one of the best promo guys. Izzy drew some tremendous heat. Uh, we had some riots and stuff, and uh, Izzy was a big part of having those riots. It was awesome. I want to take a little bit of a sidestep real quick. You mentioned the ICW Wrestling School. Who ran the ICW Wrestling School? What was the story with that? For a while, we were buying a building in downtown Lexington, and me and Randy actually lived in the building, and Buddy Landell did too, and then we were going to have to pay $50,000 just to pick up the electrical, and Miser said, poop on that, we're not going to do it. So then we ran Rough Arena some and had to go to do a lot of political stuff to get in there because... Jarrett lived in uh, Hendersonville. They run, you know, Nashville, Evansville, Memphis, uh, Louisville, and Lexington. And that was really their best town. So when Randy eventually worked with them, they drew 8,000 people to Rupp Arena against Jerry Lawler. So we, we were over big, we was over big time. We did everything. We had guys would you could beat the shit out of each other. We were young. We were hungry. We were athletic. But we had the shitty TVs and the, put it the inferior TVs, the, the the UHF stations, and they would have the Vs, which are stronger, and they had the solid TV slime slot. Like in, in Louisville, they'd be on Channel 3 at noon. We'd be on Channel 41 at maybe 1.30 in the afternoon. In Memphis, they was on uh, live there for the 90-minute show. We had the tape show that was on. Uh, 
uh, a different channel there. We was on channel 25 on Evansville late night, but they was on uh, uh, channel seven. In Lexington, they were on the, uh, the stronger station, channel eight cable. We started out on 62, but moved to channel 36 as it got a little power boost. But we all decided to stay in Lexington. Why? Randy always said he threw a dart and hit Lexington, and there we were. But the first TV we got was, uh, we made our first TV tapings on March 13, 1979, right there at Channel 41 in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, the first TV we had was Hazard. And that was one of Fuller's great towns. And we, we was on Channel 57 and in Hazard. And we ran Combs, which is a couple of miles outside. And we'd have turn away business there that eastern kentucky was a gold mine one thing they had a uh, uh, root garvin orton malenko etc they were over so strong off the knoxville tv so that eastern kentucky was a gold mine and that kept us in business for years and years just eastern kentucky because we hell we had tvs in uh we ran johnson city tennessee weekly we had oak hill west virginia tv we had the hazard tv we had the lexington tv the louisville tv the evansville tv we had uh, the Memphis TV. We had a TV in Puerto Rico that paid us money. We had a TV in uh, two of them in Montana that paid us money, one in uh, Mobile, Pensacola that paid us money. And then we had four TVs in uh, Southern Illinois. And it was the station where Dick DeBruzzi was at in like Champaign, Urbana, uh, way up there in be sort of like Northern Illinois. So we was competing against God, everybody and didn't give a shit. We were just running towns. But anyway, back to, back to the uh, uh, the ICW wrestling school. Yeah. It was George Lanny, Pez Watley, who was a babyface at the time. George Weingrove? And Garvin was there. Yes. And George was a wrestling coach at the Indiana School for the Blind. Kim and Pez were teammates at the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga. George was like the 185-pounder, and then Pez was the, uh, the heavyweight. And Pez was the first black state champion in Tennessee. And he became a powerlifting champion, et cetera. And we had about a hundred and over a hundred people there. They just come in for the first day and paid 25 bucks. Garvin went there and he was against all of them because all they're a bunch of marks. So Garvin would get guys in the ring and he'd sort of stretch them and sugar them. And guys would pee their pants, poop their pants, and whatever. And they sprayed car- Garvin was going to kill these guys. He didn't want them in business. But uh, a couple guys survived. Uh, Ron Strunk was one. Uh, Jeff Sword got in. And then, uh, but I don't, I don't think Jeff got, I think Jeff got laid a little before that. And then they teamed him up with Doug Bynes and had his, his, his their manager. So I'm going back and forth. And I just start talking jabbing as usual. So you cut me off, Brian. If I'm saying something stupid or, or going off there, because this, this main thing was just talking about Izzy. No, that's quite all right, because we're getting an overall history lesson, and I think that's important. Talking about Izzy again, you mentioned that he started some riots. He had great heat. How much heat did he have being a Jewish character in the South during this period of time? Well, I was so naive. So I didn't know. I, hell, I didn't know what a Jewish character was. And I don't think anybody in Redneck Hillbilly Haven where we were wrestling most of the time that they knew what they were. Because you're looking at New York City and Jewish from big cities and stuff like that and what he was portraying and everything. 
and we just re- we was wrestling mostly in in Redneckville, so they hated everybody. The heat that he generated in your eyes wasn't necessarily any sort of anti-Semitic thing as much no. as just him being a heel no. manager. Right. It's like I was from Seymour, Indiana, population 12,000 or whatever. I didn't know what a Jew was. And, but you get mad at somebody, you call him a Jew because that's what somebody else said. The hell, I didn't even know what the hell that was. Didn't know anything at all about it. <laughs> was it tough for him to be a manager considering he was a trained wrestler? Was it tough for him not to be in the ring and just be at ringside? I have no idea. I wasn't him. You know that when you're a manager, you're there to get them out of finishes. You're there to be a mouthpiece for somebody. They're here to use distractions, but do it so the referee is enforcing his job to do what he's supposed to be doing, and you're not bearing the ref. You're actually breaking rules, and the ref's being the the good official, and he's catching you and making you sit down in that chair. In the meanwhile, the devil's duo are switching behind the guy's back and ever they're double teaming or whatever because the referee's busy with the manager trying to keep the uh, fiasco as legit contest, and then the fans would just go crazy. It is he throwing shit at him, hitting him, and but that but that was the norm. I remember me and Randy would tag there. We'd leave the ring. We would have to uh, sometimes punch our way out, walk out back to back to protect each other. And that was, and I remember Randy got stabbed. Hell, I got stabbed in South Africa, and that was just the way it was. And uh, it was just normal. That's why guys don't get it when. We'd actually have to fight our way back to the dressing room. We had fucking riots and stuff like that. I'll try not to cuss too much. <laughs> and then, uh, and now we got the uh, wrestling where it's a joke and it's a rib. And the crowds were just so different. They'd be crying to their baby faces. They'd get violent, try to protect the, the good guys and everything. And now everything's a joke. Everybody's a snowflake. Everybody gets to do their stupid chants. And now there's that a Ricky Morton selling and the girls crying and shit. Now they're laughing. Oh, and they're in a rest hold. Anyway, I didn't want to get into that shit. What was the story with Randy getting stabbed? Oh, was this? Well, hell, it was just part of it. It happened. Hell, all of a sudden, and then it's gone. He never missed. I remember he didn't miss a, a match or anything like that. And he had a bunch of stitches. It was all taped up and everything. I remember we had a riot in Somerset and I punched some mark in the I punched one and he put his head down. So I got him, but I broke my hand. So I had to get a cast on it, but then the baby faces would work on the cast. So I just took a, I cut that some bitch off and my hand didn't heal. Right. But what the hell? Right. That was, that's the way it was at that time in pro wrestling. And that was the norm. And, and what an adrenaline rush you got doing that. So, uh, it was, it was fun. <laughs> And and what the hell? And Randy, he wanted to fight anybody for no reason anyway. <laughs> you were part of ownership in ICW, and you mentioned before how sometimes the boys made more money than you guys did as ownership. How much money would someone like Izzy have made to manage on these shows? Oh, he's lucky to average $40 a night, seven days a week. And what about, let's say, the Devil's Duo? Oh, it'd be the same thing. Same thing. So manager and wrestler Hell. got the same pay. Yeah. Uh-huh. If you did, uh, yeah. There was nobody. Uh, everybody pretty much got the same thing unless you was really great and you get the big two five, but you got free trans in the, they paid for it, which is the big deal. 
and then uh, you were and you were safe uh and that's how, and that's how we existed it was a rough life but we was there to learn it was a stepping stone in the territories you're trying to get a year or two under your belt then you could go on to somewhere else and you go on to somewhere else and you go on to somewhere else pretty soon 10 10 years down the line you've had 3000 matches you've learned to work baby face heel uh, an aggressive heel a chicken shit heel or uh, a technical baby face, a high flyer, or, uh, whatever, whatever they need. And you pretty much learn the business. So you could go in and walk in the first time and, and everybody was, was sort of universally trained and you could go and have a 30 minute match and you walk in and they'd tell you, uh, you're going 30 minutes through when they would go through the, there was no phones. There was no way to communicate. You had separate dressing rooms and stuff. And you go, might go 30 minutes with somebody the first time you ever seen them and not even know their name. And uh, uh, the ref might say, okay, you guys are going through. You got 30, okay, boom. And you're talking with a guy and acts like you're your hand and going ropes. And I said, uh, what do you do good? I said, if I call something and you don't get it, uh, just say, oh, I don't do that well. Don't worry, I'll figure it out. I know how to get us here because the heels ran the show. The heels were good. The baby face just, all they had to do was shut up and listen and they'd have a good match. You mentioned how Roop and Orton would leave, and they left in 1981 to go to Bill Watts. And right around this period of mm-hmm. time, slowly but surely, one by one, guys started leaving to the point where by the end of 1983, it was really just the Poffos. Even you were gone by that period of time. Do you remember yeah. how and why Izzy left? I remember him showing up working on Georgia TV, but do you remember how and why he left? No, it was usually it was a danger issue. Izzy was married. And then a lot of times it was, they needed more money and we couldn't give it to them or we go out of business. You know, it's like somebody working at McDonald's for minimum wage. And they said, well, I, I, I can't work here. I got to get another job cause uh, I got to survive and I'll make enough money. Well, we understood that. So, and they kept the belts on us because we wouldn't go anywhere because it'd be like, would Ron Fuller give all those guys the power as bookers and this and that? All of a sudden, he had other guys booking his territory. Didn't have his guys his territory went against him. So, basically, ran him out of Knoxville, and he went down to uh, Pensacola. And as far as working, I didn't have uh, golly to work for the Fullers was an honor. I never, I never heard them raise their voice or anything. And uh, money was always there, and uh, they understood the wrestling business so good and i worked ron and for ron and southeastern when they was down in pensacola and i worked for him in continental let's say i went down there in uh 83 garvin got me booked down there uh really uh, no jerry no jerry no garvin booked me when i left icw i went down and did a couple tvs for uh here was garvin who started all the shit <laughs> in knoxville yeah and he was tight he was tight with robert fuller so Robert, he just, ha ha. So he booked me down to work for Fuller's for a week before I went in to work for Bill Watts. And Garvin, he got me to work for Bill Watts there in 1983. When I left there, Jerry Stubbs was there as Mr. Olympia. He was tight with Fuller and him. So he brought me in for Ron Fuller after I left Bill Watts. Well, then when I got in with, with Ron, after Ron, I worked, he called up Bob Armstrong and Bob Armstrong called up Ole. So when I was leaving there, uh, Ole called, or I talked to him, and I come in to work for Ole right after the the Black Saturday thing, 
the black, whatever that was called, you know, when Vince come over and took over. So uh, I, I was going in to work for Ole and because I remember DiBiase was there. And uh, so I was working for Ole for eight months until Crockett come in. And then as soon as Crockett come in, I was fired right away. But I got to work main events the last six weeks on the way out. And then I went and down worked for Wahoo. And then that, you just kept on going and doing your stick, meeting people, learning different angles, learning de- different styles, seeing different stuff on TV. And the cable TV wasn't so much. So you could go out there and do the same shit you did in uh, Pensacola. And it could be fresh somewhere else. And now I'm rambling again. Uh, but anyway. <laughs> in terms of going to Watts, you know, I mentioned Orton and Rupko there in 81. So many guys end uh-huh. up there. One man gang who was Crusher Broomfield ends up there. You end up there in 1983. Even the Devil's Duo without that name, Jeff Sword and, and Doug Vines, they end up there for at least one TV taping, I remember, in 1982. How did so many guys get into there? You guys were all worried about being blackballed. You were running opposition to everyone. Uh, was it well, Ernie Ladd? Because Ernie Ladd had been... Yes. Yeah, Ernie Ladd come in, and he was buddies with Garvin, so he come in to scout talent. So he come in and he worked, uh, I remember he, we worked Johnson City, we worked Frankfort, Kentucky, and Beckley, West Virginia. And we had some of the best houses we had there with Ernie Lagg because he was legitimate and everybody knew who he was. He was buddies with Garvin, so he went and saw Crusher Broomfield. And then all of a sudden, uh, <laughs> the Crusher was going down and working for Bill Watts. Instead of making two hundred and some dollars, he was making two thousand and some dollars doing the same shit, right? <laughs> so he was in hog heaven. And then so we had the pipeline there. So I know Rick McCord worked there too, Buddy Landell worked there too. And the list goes on and on of the ICW people. Watts didn't give a shit about blackball. If you could work, if you could do what you was told, help draw, you were a pro, that's all he cared about. Because he wanted to make money and you wanted to make money. You know, a quick aside, because I haven't asked you about this since it emerged, but what did you think when the Plan B video of Roop, Garvin, Orton, and Malenko finally got out? Okay. I didn't see that until, I guess, was it last year, this year, whatever, right? Yeah. I saw that, and I, and I saw it, and I looked at it, and I said, no, they were bluffing. All they was doing is to make it look like they weren't bluffing because they wasn't because they all went on to keep on wrestling. That was the only thing they knew. I don't think Garvin had a high school education. You know what I mean? And that's all these guys knew was pro wrestling. And it was it was a good bluff and whatever, but they would they wouldn't have done that. There ain't no way. What was your impression? At least in my mind. I was, I went, holy moly, when I saw that shit, right? Then I just said, no, now they're working the workers. So, and that's what I believe. And I, I think that they wasn't going to do, they, they just wasn't going to do that, you know? Cause then, because then they weren't going to piss on the, in the chili for everybody. Back to Izzy Slapowitz. After ICW closes down and everyone goes their separate ways, do you, Stay in touch with him at all? Do you see him or talk to him any point before Mike Mondo's seminar not, work? Not really, because you got to remember, then there was barely any cable TV, and I didn't see it anyway because we would wrestle all the time. And you didn't the, – the guys used to have the big – like the ledger, the address book, right? 
you knew everybody's number, but there wasn't cell phones or anything. You couldn't have a hundred dollar phone bill a month. Are you kidding me? You just, you just, you didn't have no money to pay on that phone and stuff like that. So all the years I was wrestling, the only one that ever kept in touch with me and called me weekly was the the Buddy Wayne from Buddy Wayne Wrestling School from Portland, Oregon. I met him in the Maritimes in 1988 when he was out there, and uh, but we always conversed on the phone for years and years and years and years and years. But that was the only guy I really talked to on a consistent basis. Was there any sort of special connection when you would run into an old ICW guy, like you running into Izzy at that seminar, just because you guys didn't just work for the same company. You guys were the outlaws. You guys were the rebels. You guys ran opposition to everyone. Is there a certain relationship that you have with the guys that work there that's different than the guys you worked with in other territories? Yeah, we would have, I remember one time, it's like we go to Southern Illinois and we'd have the heels. Miser might buy a $33 room is like 1980, right? And we got 16 guys sleeping there. You know what I mean? On the floor, underneath the sink and whatever. And we didn't spend no money. And then we'd uh, get with the fans and the girls that we'd have a, uh, they'd give us food and stuff, take us to the next town and this and that. The ring uh, crew would be there because we used a ring that was, we had a ring on the, the west side, which was housed in Southern Illinois. Then we had one, we kept one, the spot show ring. We had the ring that was in Johnson City. And uh, so we had, we were running all the way from Missouri, all the way to West Virginia in opposition to everybody. So we had different rings we, we would use. And some of them were 16, some of them were 18, some of them were rope ropes, some of them were like boxing rings and whatever. And you had to know how to work, bump, and you had to know your rings too. And ain't like you had the perfect uh, giant Boba rings or the perfect WWF rings and nothing hurts. Some of this shit would co- it goddamn kill you. <laughs> it hurts so bad. Uh, but anyway, wait to whatever I was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, but no, but when you were... Yeah, when you were an ICW guy, you had a special bond forever. And now all the stuff and the hard times you went through, now that's the great part of wrestling. It wasn't about the money. It was about the journey of getting there, telling the stories, this and that. And it was just what a good time it was. And you'd see somebody, you'd go back. Remember we had this riot in this town, whatever. Remember Ramona and I laid at Pikeville. Remember all this and that, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And it was just, uh, it was always good reminiscing with everybody. Well, Rip, as we wrap up this segment, and I want to thank you for again appearing on the Super Podcast. When you look at Izzy Slapowitz, what is the legacy that he leaves behind when it comes to ICW? And also, what are your thoughts upon hearing of his passing earlier this week? Well, you know, I put a bunch of pictures up on Twitter or whatever that over the years when he was my manager at Mississippi, some pictures when he was ICW, when we was at that seminar together, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And it just shows you, A, how stuff in your life can change in a moment. And all of a sudden, everything, all of a sudden, somebody's gone. He went in, I guess he went in for some kind of back surgery. And had some kind of complications. I he had a heart attack, a stroke during that. And all of a sudden, hours later, they said the next day he he uh, he was gone. And you better, if you got troubles with somebody, it's best to make up because it ain't worth it. Holding a grudge, when you hold a grudge, you're mad about something from 40 years ago on a bad payoff or whatever. 
uh, hey, you go into this world with nothing and you leave with nothing and try and have a try and have a good as time as you can. And it's like when you're in the wrestling business, hell, I've been in since the seventies and I wouldn't have done rather done anything else in the world. And this is when you got baseball players making all, all I ever wanted to do was be a wrestler. And I was going to figure out how I was going to get in there. And I did. And if you got in the wrestling business a long time ago, there wasn't any wrestling schools. The only one I knew was Vern Gagne's and he was going to let me into his camp. But in the meantime, I got my Carlin Hildegard boots. I got my shiver cape. I got all my boxing boots and everything. And I'd bullshit my way in to start having my first match at Oak Hill, West Virginia, W-O-A-Y TV. Tonight, I met the Cuban assassin. Uh, a couple of weeks later, B.B. Coleman took me to the WWF TV. And then I worked TVs for the Sheik, started with Dick the Bruiser. Uh, met Lanny Poffo, working for uh, Dick Goulas on a Christmas night spectacular in 1977, and the list goes on and on. You meet people, and uh, that's how it starts. And you shake your head and you tell people stories you couldn't make them up because they were so outlandish. And all of a sudden, you look back and you smile and you say, "What a life I've lived!" And I wouldn't trade. I wouldn't trade it for anything. And it was never about the money. There you hear it, the hustler Rip Rogers, a friend of the show, someone who I am sure you'll be hearing back on these airwaves again in the future. But right now, it is time for Book of the Week. And this week, Book of the Week is actually going to be a bunch of books, several books, many, many, many books that you can get at Crowbar Press, crowbarpress.com. Of course, just recently, Scott Teal and Crowbar Press have put out a collection, 1970 and 1971 all of the programs that Championship Wrestling from Florida put out. This is a really great way to find out about all the different programs, all the different feuds, all the different matches that were taking place in 1970 and 1971 in Florida. There are so many great books, biographies, autobiographies, history books, collections of interviews, Scott's Wrestling Archive Project. I highly endorse, I encourage you to go, if you are a historian and someone who cares about wrestling history, and try to figure out how this crazy business came together, go to crowbarpress.com. Let them know you heard about it right here on the 605 Super Podcast. Now, you can get those books at crowbarpress.com, but there's lots of other items that you can get at Amazon, whether it's books or clothing, perhaps crayons, records. I don't know why I threw crayons in there, probably because I just had to buy those twistable crayons for my daughter. But there's so much you can get at Amazon. And if you're going to go to amazon.com, don't forget to use our promo link tinyurl.com slash superpod Amazon. By using that link, you don't do anything differently than you would normally do at amazon.com. You spend the same amount of money that you would spend at amazon.com. It's just we get a little bit of love and support from Jeff Bezos and our friends at Amazon. They say, hey, how did this person end up here? Oh, it was the 605 Super Podcast that sent them here. So for whatever it may be, tinyurl.com slash superpod Amazon. Lots of other shows have links they want you to use. Lots of other shows beg you to use their links. You need to ask yourself, who should I support? Who puts the care into the quality of the show? Who just shits out a show, doesn't care about the audio quality, doesn't care about how they speak to the audience, and who actually pays attention to detail, tries to get things right, researches, puts out good audio? I think if you ask yourself any of these questions, the answer will be quite obvious. It will be very, very clear. When it comes down to it, 
When it comes down to them or us, fuck those guys. Support the Super Podcast. Support your Super Podcast. And with that, we're going to go to our main event and interview with Scott Teal of Crowbar Press. A few notes here about this interview. One, I want to mention that this interview has been reviewed by Arcadian Vanguard's corporate counsel to make sure that there is no exposure for myself, the great Brian Last, the 605 Super Podcast, or Arcadian Vanguard LLC, as well as the subject of the interview, Scott Teal. I'm very happy to say there's nothing actionable in this interview. And with that, we're able to run with it. A couple other notes about it. I want to mention that this originally was a longer interview, and it will now be broken into two parts. The second portion of this interview dealt with Scott's relationship and the fallout of that relationship with Rocky Johnson. Of course, Scott wrote Rocky's biography, Soul Man, that was out on ECW Press. We actually reached out to ECW Press earlier today to confirm, and it is in fact true. It has been pulled from the market due to various issues with the text. That's a nice way of putting it. But it is no longer for sale. It is now a collector's item. It's very, very hard to get a hold of one of these. I encourage you, if you get a chance, do it today. It's going to be like the Gary Hart book, and everyone's going to want one. But due to Rocky Johnson's passing today, as we are recording this portion of the show, we are not going to play part two of this interview this week. It'll either be on episode 102 or 103. And just so everyone knows the schedule, between episode 101, which is this one, and 102, we will be putting out a Pampero Furpo special featuring interviews with historians, some people who knew Pampero, as well as some classic audio that has not been heard since it originally aired on TV. So that is the schedule, and the Rocky Johnson portion of this interview will not be airing this week. It will be airing in a few weeks on the Super Podcast. One other note here I want to say, because you'll hear what Scott has to say about his relationship with CAC and exactly what went down. But I spoke to him again a few days ago. And I want to make mention that his one concern is that he doesn't want anyone to think his comments about the events that led to his resignation reflect badly on the Cauliflower Alley Club organization. Scott loves the CAC and everything it stands for, but his concern is with the people who are running the organization without any checks and balances. He wants to be sure that nobody sees this interview as an attack on the Cauliflower Alley Club. He simply wants the story told about why he resigned and the events that pushed him to making that decision. And with that said, let's now roll with it. Here is my conversation with the publisher of Crowbar Press, wrestling historian Scott Teal. I am very happy today to welcome back to the Super Podcast a man who has done so much in and around professional wrestling, you probably best know him as the publisher of Crowbar Press. He's one of wrestling's premier historians, Scott Teal. Scott, thanks for being here today. Thanks, Brian. I'm glad to be here again, as always. You know, each year we do our State of the Union for Crowbar Press, where you talk about the books that are on the docket for the coming year and the projects you're working on. And you just recently appeared on our Hall of Fame special, where you and Jim Cornette talked a little bit about your ballots and who you voted for for the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame. But I did want to talk to you about a few other things uh, outside of those usual topics, because I'm sure you've heard it from people you know, but I've heard from a lot of people, hey, where's Scott Teal? You're someone who has had a big presence online. Obviously, you have your great Crowbar Press Archives group on Facebook. 
You're now on Twitter even. You're someone that is constantly putting out content and all of a sudden you have not been around. You have been kind of quiet. And I've heard from a lot of people, where's Scott Teal? Do you know what's going on with Scott Teal? So I thought today would be a good opportunity to talk to you a little bit about what's been going on in your life and in your relationship with professional wrestling in the uh, last, I guess, year or so uh, that we'll be talking about here. Real quick, Scott, before we get going with anything else, for anyone who's new to you, for anyone who has maybe gotten your books but doesn't know anything about your background, someone who hears you on the show talking about your projects but doesn't know about your background, if you don't mind, can you briefly talk a little bit about your background in professional wrestling, what you have done? Well, I just started out as a fan in 1968, fell in love with it. Uh, by 1971, I was going to the matches in Tampa. And shortly after that, early 1972, uh, I already latched on to trading uh, results with people around the country up until that time, uh, trading results, programs, uh, magazines, things like that, and corresponding with different people. And at some point, I decided uh, they had things in the magazines back then days called Fan Club Corner, uh, named something like that. And it listed people. They listed their address in the, in the magazines. And some people would say, I want to trade uh, results with people from Florida or Georgia. And you'd write them, send them results from Tampa or wherever, and they'd send you sheets uh, same way back to you. And somewhere along the line, I got interested and uh, got the idea of creating a bulletin a newsletter. And I started sending out a little newsletter called Tampa, The Tampa Scene, and it was strictly results from Tampa. And as I got a little bit more wise to the business, I realized there was wrestling in other places like Fort Myers, Miami, St. Petersburg, Jacksonville. And I developed correspondence around Florida. And I changed the name of the bulletin to Florida Fanfare because it was pretty much encompassed the whole state. Uh, that I did that 72, 73, and 74. I moved to Nashville to go to uh, college. And I went, I really didn't, uh, I had a real low profile for the first year. I didn't know a whole lot of the guys that worked up there, up here. And I didn't go to the matches. I'd say I went maybe nine, 10 times, uh, take pictures. Uh, once in a while, one of the guys from Florida would come in and see me. Of course, you know, remembered me from there. Even though I never had a big, uh, really wasn't attached to the business at all in Florida. I really knew very few people, but just, you know, the ones I did, if when they did come up to, to Nashville, I got a chance to just renew acquaintances. And uh, I never, I only had a couple uh, wrestlers that were, I could consider really good friends uh, when I was in Florida. But when I came to Nashville, I, for that year, I went a few times and took pictures at ringside. And one day, Don Green, I'd become good friends with, asked me to go to Huntsville and while I was down there, Nick Goulas uh, sent somebody out, and he says, "Would you, uh, Nick Goulas wants to see you in the back. Well, I had heard a few of the stories about Nick and his temper and uh, just how he sort of treated people, and I, sort of <laughs> I was sort of scared, but uh, I went back there, and he asked me to come to work for him. He said he had seen my work in the magazines and wanted to know if I'd do that, and uh, to make a short story short uh, or shorter, I uh, ended up doing the uh, not only the photography for Nick and the promotion, but I did all the publicity pictures for the guys and uh, also ended up doing a program called Slamogram. So I did the arena programs for about six years and had a ball. I mean, it was a dream come true actually working for a promotion. I never, I mean, it was just, I just fell into it. I never 
uh, sought it out. I never, you know, asked, say, hey, I'd like to come work, do work in the office or do this or do that. But just something really just fell into my lap. Thanks to Nick and, and his son, George Goulis. George was, um, I'm sure George was very instrumental in, in getting me, uh, bringing me to the attention of Nick, even though I'd never met George to that point. You know, there's going to be a lot of fans listening to this surprised that you're from Florida and not Tennessee. Oh, I know. <laughs> that's true. That's true. But yeah, that's where my roots were for five, uh, six years. I, I was very, you know, active going to the wrestling matches and learning and meeting new fans and traveling in Florida and uh, making, I, you know, it's funny. I never, I went to Jacksonville, Tallahassee, of course, Tampa. I never made it over to Orlando, down to Miami. I never made any of those shots. I don't know why. I wish I had now. It's, you know, you, you look back on your life and there's regrets you have, you know, and that, that's one of them that I never took the time, not only to uh, not go to Miami or uh, Orlando, but the fact that I never went to the Keel Auditorium, never went to Madison Square Garden. The only place I ever saw pro wrestling uh, before I actually got into the business was in uh, Atlanta. And I went to a few shows in Georgia. I made a trip up there a couple times, went to the Omni a few times and shot pictures. And uh, But uh, I never made any of those great places, Dallas Sportatorium, the, uh, you know, all the all the big uh, Charlotte Park Center. I wish I'd gone to those places just to say I'd been there. In fact, I only went to Knoxville once or twice. Uh, one time, I forget who it was, asked me to ride over with him, one of the wrestlers. And I, so I rode over and of course I knew all the guys there cause they had, they, they switched talent, you know, Ron Fuller switched talent back and forth from Knoxville to Nashville. So it was sort of nice going to see that it was at the, uh, Knoxville Coliseum. I never did have the opportunity to go chill Howie park, but, uh, like I said, that's, uh, you, you grow up and you look back on things and, and there's things you regret not doing. And, and that's definitely one of them. Nick Goulis closes up in 1980, I believe. At that point, you leave wrestling, correct? You're done with wrestling for a considerable period of time. Famous last words. Yeah, I guess I'm through with wrestling. I'll probably, I won't have anything to do with wrestling again. (laughs) Well, that held true until about 1992. And uh, a guy called me one day. I don't even know how he got my name, but I was one of the very few people that owned a computer. I owned an Apple II GS and I had learned to make flyers and I, man, I love doing that kind of stuff. And one day this guy, his name was Don Rowlett. He's putting on a convention, Nashville Wrestling Collectors Association or something like that. He's putting on a convention. He's bringing in all these top names, talent from all over the country uh, for this convention. It was going to be a banquet and, and a flea market type thing. And he wanted me to go uh, to, to know if I'd help him with create flyers since I had a computer. And I told him, sure. So during the course of this, he called me one day and he says, guess what? I said, what? He says, I just talked to Dick Steinborn. And now Dick and I went back to about 1975 in Tennessee. We became really good friends. And I had, but I hadn't talked to him since, you know, I got out of the business in 80. In fact, Dick was there in 1980 when Buddy Fuller took over from Nick Goulas. And I worked closely with Dick during that time. Well, the guy, Don Rowlett, he says, I just talked to Dick, uh, Dick Steinborn and he asked me whatever happened to Scott Teal. And sure enough, a light went off in my head. And, and believe it or not, that's where the idea for my newsletter, whatever happened to came from. And I started that newsletter doing interviews with the old timers because most of those guys had disappeared. The fans didn't know where they were. So I'd start this newsletter. I published not only information about them, did short interviews, uh, but I published their name, their address, and their phone number in this newsletter. 
and none, none of them had a problem with it. They all, in fact, I, you don't believe the calls I got from the wrestlers that hadn't real, really hadn't been in the limelight for decades and telling me how much they enjoyed uh, hearing from the fans because they got letters from them, uh, letters from fans asking them to send them pictures, autographed pictures, and they absolutely ate it up. These guys had been in the limelight for, you know, for years and years and years, and all of a sudden they're shoved back into the, into a corner, you know, where nobody, you know, the people, the fans of today didn't even know who they were in 1992 or, or, or didn't know where they were or anything sort of, they felt like they had been forgotten. So it was a cool thing, not only for the fans to be able to contact the wrestlers, but for the wrestlers to once again, get some of this, uh, adulation that they had gotten, you know, when they were in the wrestling business. And four years later, uh, Ole Anderson asked me to, uh, help him with his book. And the rest is history. You know, I just once I Oli's book took off. I, you know, J.J. Dillon, Ivan Koloff called me, and then it was Tony Atlas, uh, just one guy after another, and which you know leads up till today. I've published, uh, I guess it's forty-five books uh, on the subject of pro wrestling. And I'm assuming that you didn't do it to get rich because it's very hard to make money with a lot of these things. They would appear to me to be labors of love. Is that correct? Oh, I have books that I've sold, and granted, I knew going in, some of these guys, uh, one in particular, and he he understands it, he says it, he even admits it, you know, and his greatest claim to fame was he wrestled one time on television for Vern Gagne. Everything else was these small little independent shows around Indiana, Ohio, Michigan. That's all he ever did. But I wrote his book with him because his story to me was fascinating. It was about a journeyman wrestler, never made it in the business, but he wanted it so badly. And I just thought it was fascinating. Now, do you go into a, a situation like that, uh, writing a book like that to make money? No, there's no way. You know, it took me two years just to get my money back from what what it cost me to publish the book or to you know to get the number of copies I did. But I love those stories because uh, guys, people say all the time, they say, wow, so-and-so ought to be a great interview because, uh, you know, he was main event. And But I have found the guys on the undercard are, if not just as interesting, more interesting than the guys that are in the main events because those were the guys in the trenches. Those were the guys fighting every day to get a decent payoff, you know, from the promoters to make a living. And so, uh, so yeah, I had a, I, uh, you're not going to get rich writing books. Uh, when I go into a book with anybody, the first thing I say, first words out of my mouth is if you're writing a book to make money, don't even bother because there's probably not going to be any to be made. But if you want to write a book for your legacy and to preserve the history of the business and yourself, then let's go for it because that's what I'm looking for. I'm I'm wanting to preserve the history. It's not about the money. Wrestling fans, as a rule, do not spend money on books. You know, if I was going to make money uh, writing books, I'd be writing about football, baseball, basketball, or something else. We're going to talk a little bit more about your books and specifically a book you worked on within the last year. But I want to take a sidestep here because one of the things I wanted to talk to you a little bit about is your relationship with the Cauliflower Alley Club and specifically your recent involvement with them. But to take a step back from that, what is your history with CAC? Were you a member way back? When did you first join? Did you get involved in any of their annual reunions? What is your history with CAC before your recent involvement on, I believe you were on the executive board, weren't you? Yes, I started uh, with CAC probably around 1993, shortly after I 
uh, started my whatever happened to newsletter. Up until then, I really didn't even know what CAC was because when I got out of pro wrestling, I just, you know, I just put it behind me. That was it. I was, you know, didn't follow it, didn't read about it, uh, except for an occasional observer. So a friend of mine used to get the observer and he'd pass them on to me and I'd read them, which I thought was fascinating. At that time, it was just the most incredible stuff. But uh, I think I joined in 93 and I went to my first uh, reunion and I, I want to say 94, 95, something like that. It may have been 93, uh, had a ball. But the funny thing is, and a lot of people don't know this, but when I went the first time, most, I forget, it was either the Plaza Hotel or there was another one. But uh, when we got there, there was no room like they've got now. There was no gathering room, vendor room. It was st- simply the, the boys got to the hotel. They walked around the lobby, sat in the lobby and talked. There was no main gathering place. And one of the first things I did when I got home is call somebody. I don't remember who I called, but I said, or I may have emailed him even. That was the early days of email. But I said, you have got to have a room for people to meet in because people walk around that hotel. You don't know where anybody is. You don't know where any of the, the, the wrestlers are. Uh, the wrestlers didn't know where each other. The only time you saw each other is if you just happened to run into each other or at the banquet that night. And sure enough, that next year they started a uh, they, they they had a room and it was the greatest thing because everybody could go to that room and hang out there. They knew everybody was going to come through there at one time or another. And the other thing is, it was around that same time that I actually created the first website for the Colorful Alley Club. Uh, Carl Lauer said something not long ago about J. Michael Kenyon being the guy that started the website. And I said, no. I said, Red Bastine turned it over to, to J. Michael Kenyon, but I was the one that created the website from the, at the very beginning. But anyway, uh, so that's sort of my history. Uh, four or five years later, I was asked to be on the exec- on the. Uh, just on the general board, not the executive board, but on the general board. And I was for a few years. And some things happened in one of the meetings that I just, I said, this isn't for me. I didn't want the negativity in my life. Uh, they, were, they made some, re- one of the executives made some references to a good friend of mine. Uh, they sort of, he was calling roll is what he was doing. And to see who is at the meeting there at, in Vegas at the board meeting. And in the process, after he called out all the names that were there, he says, well, so-and-so is sick. So-and-so has to do this. And so-and-so, he's just not here. I, I, I think he just must not care enough to be here. Well, that set me off because this guy, I'll tell you his name is Les Thatcher. I said, Les is a good friend of mine, and he can't be here for reasons that are very valid. Number one, he doesn't have the money to get here. And it set me off. I stood right up. Of course, everybody else sat in there with their heads looking at the floor like the wrestlers always did when the promoters walked in. And, you know, uh, so so it sort of set me off. And it, it wasn't long after I said, you know, this isn't for me. I'm not going to sit there and let them uh, say disparaging things about other, you know, other board members uh, when they're not there to defend themselves. You know, that's not what I'm here for. So I quit. Uh, still a member of the CAC. I still supported it. I still went to the annual reunions. And then uh, about two, three years ago, Dean Silverstone approached me a few times about being on the executive board. And I just simply said, no, I'm not interested. I had problems with it before. I didn't enjoy myself. And it just was too much. I don't know. Just I just didn't care for it. And so then at my reunion here at our house, September a year ago, well, well, let me uh, stop right. you there because not everyone 
will be aware of okay. that. What is the reunion that you do at your house? I, my, Angela, my wife and I, we held a, a reunion every year in end of September. For it started out as for the guys in uh, that worked for Nick Goulas, my friends, the guys I traveled up and down the road with. Most of these people hadn't seen each other like we talked earlier for years, you know, decades. And so Angela and I brought them all together here for a reunion. My wife had uh, my wife actually cooked lunch and dinner on Friday, lunch on Saturday, and then uh, after two years, she was having lunch, uh, dinner on Saturday night as well. And she actually prepared the meal for seventy to eighty people for seven years. And we didn't charge anything. It was just something we did because uh, we love these people. And so that's uh, that's that's the story of the reunion. But we. It started out as a guy that worked for Nick Goulas, and over time, over three, four years, of course, a lot of the guys were dying, and uh, so we said, let's open it up to some other people, some of the people I, you know that I knew that were, I was really good friends with. So uh, it was a we had great times. I mean, it, I, I just loved the reunion. It was a lot of work, a lot of money, but we had a ball every time we had it, and uh, we didn't have it this year. Uh, whether we'll have it again, I'm not real sure. But uh, we did it for seven years, and I gave awards, and, uh, you know, just, we just, just had a great time. So to go back to CAC, Dean Silverstone, who is, correct me if I'm wrong, he's been on the board of directors for probably 20 years or so. Oh, at least that, yes. Dean Silverstone, who you've published his book, he's someone you have a long relationship with. I remember his columns in Whatever Happened To when I was a teenager reading that. He asked you to be on the board. Take it from there. Pick up the story from where I interrupted you before. Sure. Uh, Dean had asked me, and I, I turned him down each time. I just wasn't interested. And then at our reunion a year ago, Brian Blair approached me, and I said, well, Brian, I don't know. I told him a little bit about what had gone down before, and I said, I, I love going to call for Alley. I love the call for Alley. I said, but I just think getting involved, just it would be a mistake. Well, he continued to, you know, he mentioned it, talked to me about that weekend. And then Dean came up the same way. Dean was here as well. And he came up, started talking to me about it. And I told them both I'd give them my decision in a week or so. This was shortly after Morgan Dollar left, left the, uh, left the uh, board had quit. So within, I talked to my wife about it. We talked and talked and talked about it. And finally came to the decision that, yes, I'd take the executive vice president spot that they offered me. And uh, I told them I'd do the best of my best of my ability to, uh, you know, to help the club grow and uh, move forward. And sure enough, that's what I did. And uh, from September through, well, end of April, I worked almost full time, uh, which pretty much was full time. <laughs> I restructured the club. I um Re, uh, rebuilt the website uh, just to make it a little easier for people to find ways to buy tickets. I handled the vendor room, helped Dean. Dean was just great as far as, you know, handling. He handled the finances and uh, sort of the financial secretary. He took the orders from the website, passed the information on to me so I could send people information about the hotel. But anyway, I worked, did that for about, what is that, about eight months, I guess, full time, pretty much full time. You know, I have right here a letterhead from the CAC. I'm going to guess this is probably from around 1999 because it's after Art Abrams and Archie Moore had both passed away. And Archie Moore passed away in 98. Here's the board of directors listed here. President Luthez, Vice President Carl Lauer. He was also chairman. Vice President and Treasurer Chris Drake. 
Brittany Brown, Recording Secretary, Maria Bernini, Communications, and then Bill Anderson, Sid Balkin, Gary Ballin, Penny Banner, Richard Byer, uh, better known as the Destroyer, Dick Byer, Fred Blassie, Valerie Bosch, the widow of Paul Bosch, historian Tom Burke, Mike Chapman, Don Curtis, legal counsel Tom Drake, Dan Gable, Vern Gagne, Sheldon Goldberg, J. Michael Kenyon, unfortunately they put a period after the J here, which is incorrect. <laughs> yes. Budokan, Walter Kowalski, John Philip Law as the real advisor, Al Mandel, Phil Maurer, William Murdoch, Michael Neparadny, uh, let me try that again. Neparadny. Michael Neparadny, the official photographer, Pat Patterson, Dean Silverstone, Gordon Soley, and Ella Waldick, with regional directors listed as Red Bastine in Texas, Al Campbell in Canada, George Napolitano in New York and New Jersey, William Pappas in Oregon, Steve Ricard in New Zealand, and Russ Rodriguez in Palm Springs, California. So that's the board of directors from, I think, around 1999-2000. When you were asked to join by Dean Silverstone, who was on the board of directors? Oh, boy. Um, well, well, that's the interesting thing. Before I was asked, a year before, uh, Gloria Lovell was the rec- uh, recording secretary. You had Scott Hosey in charge of the vendors. Uh, Royal Duncan is the newsletter publisher. Morgan Dollar was the executive vice president. Uh, they had several others. Um, well, I'm drawing a blank. I, I know. I don't. I can't recall right offhand, but during that year, things were just getting worse and worse on the board. There was a lot of tension. Every most of the meetings they had, uh, we, they had the meetings, you know, like conference calls to have their meetings. Uh, most of those meetings ended up in screaming matches, cursing, uh, you name it. It just they they couldn't could not work together, and. It had never been. I mean, they've always had problems. Every board has, you know, dissension. Guys, some people want one thing with someone another, but this was just absolutely out of hand. Four of the board members and some of the associate board members during the past year and a half quit absolutely through with CA Scott. um, Oh, there's somebody else I just thought of, but anyway. Four or five of the board members quit, plus some associate members, because they were so fed up with the way things were being done. The rules weren't being adhered to when something was brought up and the board voted on it, says, okay, we're going to do it this way, or we want this, we don't want this. Well, then one of the grand muhahas uh, took it upon themselves to do those things anyway. It was his, you know, his way or the highway. It didn't matter what the board voted on. So it just over time, just you know, tempers got worked, you know, that flared and the the members got fed up because they weren't being listened to. The rules weren't being followed and they all quit. And I think Morgan Dollar was probably the first of the bunch. There may have been one other. I remember a few years back, there was an incident where Howard Brody quit and then started talking yeah. about CAC. I remember he was on Jim Cornette's podcast talking about problems he had with CAC. Yes. the um. The four or five I'm talking about were just in the last year and a half. Uh, before that, there was several others that quit too, and they never even come back, came back to the CAC, even to the meetings. They were so fed up. 
So, um, so ultimately, they were without anybody to handle the vendor room, anybody to do the registration, anybody to handle the vice president's spot. Uh, and there was something else I can't remember what it was. Royal Duncan, he was ready to quit. They were just up in arms. So when I took over, I ended up inheriting all four board member spots. It wasn't supposed to be that way, but I did it because when I took over, it was like late October, and the reunion was coming up a few months later, six months, five months later. And we didn't have time to find, you know, somebody else and get other things rolling. So I just rolled with it. I just took things, uh, took things underhand and uh, did what I could do to improve things. I want you to understand, Brian, I'm not saying any of this because I'm looking for an attaboy or I did this, I did that. I'm saying all this because I want people to understand that there was a lot of things said and done during this time that I, that I took care of, and yet in the long run, I was expected to do it. It was almost as if I was an employee. Uh, you know, it was like, you do what I want, or you're in charge of this, and you're in charge of that, and yet other people, other people weren't doing anything, or very little, anyways. Well, let me jump in here and ask you a couple things. One is how is the board of directors put together? How does someone get on the board of directors? Secondly, how is the president and CEO elected to that spot? And third of all, does the president or any of the board members draw a salary from CAC? No, there's no compensation whatsoever. I, you know, before I got on the board, I had always heard that, you know, there's some of them were getting their rooms comped, you know, and, and I don't know if that's the case or not. Or not. Uh, I haven't seen that or nobody has said that when I was on the board. I do know we do get three people, which I wasn't one of them, but three people on the board, executive board, do get a suite at the uh, Gold Coast. But it's they still have to pay for it, but it's it's the same price as what everybody else pays for a regular room. So that that's the only real compensation uh, that anybody gets. They still pay for their banquet tickets. They still pay for their own transportation. And there there is absolutely no salary whatsoever. And how does someone get on the board and how is the president elected? The president, be honest with you, I don't know who makes that decision. I do know Carl Lauer, uh, I believe, uh, was one of the ones instrumental in getting Brian Blair on the board as the new as the president, but I don't know how that comes about. My guess is, if, if just like all the other officers, if we need an executive vice president, then during one of the conference calls between all the other executive board members, someone says, you know, we need an executive vice president. Let's, uh, you know, th there's a guy named Brian Last. I think ought to be executive vice president. He'd do a great job, and so they talk about it, they vote on it, and I guess the majority wins. Uh, I don't think we added any, well, no, we didn't uh, add any executive uh, board members while I was there. Uh, of course, they have, uh, well, I don't know if they have yet, because I've, I've, the VP spot is still open, from what I understand. But it's pretty much just the decision of the four or five people who make up the executive board. A friend of the show who's been on many segments, many popular segments, is George Shire, wrestling historian. He was on the board too, correct? Yes, he was. He's an, uh, yeah, well, he was on the, I don't know if he was ever on the executive board. He was on the associate board for a year, many, many years. George was a really valuable member uh, for the CAC. Uh, one of the things, you know, he, he was very strong as far as the historians go, you know, taking care of making sure the 
uh, historian award goes to somebody that's uh, really, you know, deserving of it. Uh, so George was very, very instrumental. Of course, he, he's been on the associate board for many years. Uh, shortly after I resigned, uh, he resigned. And I immediately, as soon as I read his, his message about he's resigning, I immediately sent a message to Brian and the others saying I had no clue that he was going to resign. It has nothing to do with me because I didn't want them come back, say, Scott's talking to people and getting them upset and getting them to resign because nothing of the sort happened. I hadn't said anything to anybody other than the fact that I resigned. Well, before we get there, because obviously I want the story of why you resigned and when you resigned, but there's still a lot of story to tell to get there, I would assume. Let me ask you about Brian Blair. When he showed up at your reunion at your house, your annual reunion, had you met him before? Did you have any relationship with Brian Blair? Oh, yeah, I knew Brian. I, yeah, I knew. I sure did. I knew him both from the CAC reunions. Uh, I don't know where I first met Brian. It had been back before, just probably shortly before he published his book, uh, Smarten Up, Say It Right, because uh, I remember uh, talking to him about the book. I did a short interview with him about it to help promote the book. And so, yeah, so I, I, I knew I, I knew Brian. I always had a lot of respect for Brian. And obviously for you to consider, and it's beyond consideration, for you to join the executive board and get so involved, and I think you're one of these guys, it's hard for you to get involved with a project and not really put your heart and soul into it, from my uh, knowledge of how you do things. I'm going to assume you wouldn't have done any of that if you didn't have a good working relationship with Brian at that point. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. When I jump into something, it doesn't matter what it is. It's, uh, you know, I go in feet first. I, there's no halfway. Uh, it's like my wife always, my wife was recently saying something about comic books. I, um, I collected comic books when I was in high school, all the way up through probably 82. And I still have most of them. And after all this happened, I said, I'm backing off from wrestling. I'm going to just, I'm going to do some other things. I'm gonna, for now, I'm going to start watching more movies. Uh, we got a home theater in our basement. I watch movies. And I decided I'm going to sell my, re- my comic book collection. Of course, I also started buying comics. But I've been working on that 24-7 for the past five, six weeks, maybe longer, you know, because I'm trying to get my books in condition to, to sell and get them in the hands of people that, you know, that would like, you know, would appreciate them. Because, you know, I'm getting older. You know, I'm 66 years old. And, you know, they're, 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 all that stuff is same with my wrestling stuff. A lot of the wrestling stuff I'm getting, I'm starting to, to get, get out to other people because I, I'm not going to be here forever. And my kids, they couldn't care one less, you know, one little thing about my wrestling, anything re- to do with wrestling. So I'm going ahead and uh, putting a lot of it on eBay and working on that. But that's what I've been doing 24 seven. You know, like I said, I jump in feet first with all this and, I'll get back to wrestling shortly, but uh, I just had to get away for a little bit and just clear my mind. Now, I'm sure a lot of what you just said, now this is two separate things. You talked about resigning from the board and you talked about working on comic books 24-7. I'm sure a lot of people who know you, a lot of people who have followed your work are probably pretty surprised to hear that. So let's get back to the story of you and CAC. You agree to join the board. You immediately dive headfirst in and I've heard from a lot of people who have attended CACs for years, and they certainly recognized all your contributions. It stood out. The website obviously had a change in look. There was a lot more being done on social media. I know Roy Lucher ended up getting involved. When did things start turning sour? Did things turn sour for you before 
the convention and reunion? No, no, I didn't have any problems whatsoever. I mean, I was working hard, uh, you know, getting all taken care of all these things. Uh, I, re- you know, like I said, restructuring the registration process and uh, the way, you know, creating the website, making sure the website worked correctly for people who ordered. And I also worked with the vendors. I set up, uh, uh, contacted uh, hundreds of vendors, filled the room, and I was told that this was the first year that they actually they they made a decent amount of money from the reunion from the uh, from the vendors. Every other year, it's just it's been sort of a wash. They haven't made very much. And it's the first year they've ever sold out the reunion with as far as the vendors go. So I was tickled to death about, you know, having, you know, being being responsible for for a lot of that. So uh, the sour part came. Angela and I, my wife, we got to Vegas uh, on Saturday. Uh, Actually, I think we got there Friday and we did a few tourist things Friday and Saturday. Saturday night or Saturday. Let's see. Yeah, Saturday night we went and started uh, getting some things together. We had a lot of stuff with us. Sunday night, the day before the reunion, we were in that room as soon as we could get in there. It was like 4 o'clock and 5 o'clock in the afternoon on Sunday. And we started setting up for the reunion. I had also created 80 posters. Uh, There was something like uh, 1,600 pictures of pro wrestlers on display at the reunion. And we had to set all those up, get all the registration packets stuffed and all the things put out, signs, tablecloths. Uh, we did all that. We were there until midnight Sunday night working. And by, well, actually, by the time we got back to the room and to sleep, it was, it was after 1 o'clock. We were up at 6 o'clock the next morning, back in the, in the room to uh, make sure everything was set up, to get the table set up for uh, ticket sales and registration. and uh, we had those doors open one minute late, 10.01. It was supposed to open at 10 o'clock, but I told them we are going to have that room open. It's going to be open when, when we say it was, and it was 10.01. So we ended up opening up. Uh, Darlene Crease handled registration, had Bob Cook and uh, Lily uh, helping her. Uh, 10 minutes after 10, 10 minutes after we opened the doors, Brian Blair walks up and he says, Scott, he says, why is, and it's, it was a stern tone of voice. Why is Darlene on registration? I need her selling tickets. I said, Brian, it's only 10 after 10. We got all weekend for one thing. I said, the other thing is we've been talking all along that Darlene handles registration. He says, no, no, no. He says, not the registration, not the table. She handles registration getting set up. And I said, well, no, Brian, I set up registration. I'm the one that did all that. I had everything ready. So Brian just I mean, he just could could not contain himself about how it was messing things up because they could not sell. I mean, here we had three days to sell these. these uh, he wanted her to sell raffle tickets, had three days to sell raffle tickets. And it's only 10 after 10 after we open the doors. And he's concerned because she's not already selling tickets. And I said, well, Brian, he says, she's, she's got to sell tickets. So he pulls her off the table. I said, well, Brian. Who, and we stood right there in front of, there were several people right there. I know who they are, too, because they've mentioned it to me. Stood right there listening to all this. They could not believe, and they've told me since, they could not believe he was talking to me like he was. And I said, Brian, who am I going to get for registration? He said, I don't know. That's, that's, that's your job. Now, my job was executive vice president and the vendors. So now I'm in charge of registration as well. Meanwhile, what, what is he doing? You know, he's having lunch. 
uh, doing walking around, glad handing his friends, everybody. He wasn't in the vendor room, and not even an hour a day. But I got there. I was Angela ended up taking over registration. Angela comes over and she says, "Scott, I'll handle it." So she goes over there and she ran it just like a charm. She ran registration all three days. She stood behind that table and she was just there to support me. In fact, she was there to help me sell my stuff at my vendor table, which I paid for. Uh, even as uh, executive board members, we still pay all the fees. So if I wanted a vendor table, I paid for it just like everybody else. But I wasn't at that table half the time because I was walking around taking care of business here, taking care of business there, putting out fires. And so Angela, so now nobody's at my table most of the time. And Angela's handling registration. So we did that. But I asked Brian at that point when he said that about it, I'm in charge. I said, well, Brian, why am I in charge of everything? He says, well, that's, that's just your job. So the vice president is in charge of everything. So he, we got, it got a little hot, and we ended up going out in the hallway and talking it out. And I settled down. I said, okay, I'll handle it. But I, in my mind, I was determined next year wasn't going to be this way. Well, let me let me stop you here, if you don't mind, Scott, and jump in. You're doing all this. You're a member of the executive board. What was Brian Blair, the president and CEO of CAC, doing? And what were the other executive board members doing? Well, Dean Silverstone, he stood behind that table the whole time, sold tickets. That He was in charge of selling uh, when people, you know, come in. Angela's job was, uh, and Bob Cook and Lily. Uh, we're in charge of getting everybody their packet, their name tags, and all that. Uh, Dean was in charge of selling um, tickets for people who hadn't already bought their reunion ticket. So uh, he was there the whole time as well. He came in. Uh, he didn't. He got there sometime Sunday at, late Sunday afternoon, and he was there the whole time we needed him. He didn't leave that table. Uh, Dean's Dean's a prince of men. I don't know if you know him or not, but I just can't say enough good things about Dean. But uh, that that was Dean's uh, Dean's job, and he did everything you know expected of him. And he he couldn't leave the table, uh, you know. He had to to do things. Now, Angela and I were in that registration room or in the vendor room from Monday morning at six, and we didn't go back to our room till midnight that night. And it was the same both other days. We were there every morning printing name tags, handling all the little things that had to be done. And uh, Brian, his job, I don't know. Every time I talk to Brian and I ask him, I say, well, Brian, what can you do, to, you know, as far as working? His answer is always, well, Scott, I've got to answer emails. I've got to answer phone calls. I answer emails and phone calls all the time. And he, he shows me his phone. I answer phone calls and emails all the time. I'm in charge of the vendor room. I'm in charge of, you know, was in charge of handling, getting set up for registration. I do all that as well. But I have to do all the other jobs, too. That's what soured me on the whole process. Not the fact that I had to do so much. I was more than willing to do it because I knew it had to be done. I'm never one to shirk uh, any kind of responsibility, and you know I'm gonna make sure it's going to get done. But you don't talk to me like you did, and the the thing that really set me off and probably and really led to me resigning. I mean, there was other things after that, but Wednesday night before the bank, uh, Tuesday night at the bank before the banquet, Angela she says, "What about people that come in?" and don't have a reunion ticket and when they come to the banquet. So we talked about it, and she says, why don't I just sit at a table in front of the banquet doors, and when people come in, I can, I'll be there with all the information. I've got their name tags, the ones that have registered, and the ones that need to buy tickets, you know, you know, I can take care of selling them the ticket. 
and Dean Silverstone did that as well. Meanwhile, I'm inside running over, taking care of all the little things that had to be done in the banquet, making sure the WWE, uh, WWE talent got in there, uh, making sure all the signs were on the table, making sure the video presentation was ready, and, and working with Roy Lusher on that. So Angela sat there Tuesday night before the reunion for an hour, hour and a half to take care of uh, tickets and late walk-ups, uh, problems with guys who their wives didn't have tickets. I mean, we had one. It was just unbelievable. Came up one of the uh, girlfriends of one of the wrestlers, just so indignant because her ticket wasn't there and she should have had a name tag. And oh my goodness, it was one thing after another. So Wednesday night, same thing, you know, with the banquet. Well, Angel was busy putting out uh, signs on the tables, trying to help me get everything done. Brian walks up and he says, Scott, where's Angel? She needs to be selling tickets. That's his exact words. Now, who is Brian Blair to tell me what my wife should be doing? But that's, that is Brian Blair's attitude. People work for him. He's the head honcho, but people work for him. And you're, you're just a lowly employee, you know, don't, you know, he talks the big game, but he treats you like dirt. And that's what he did to me that weekend. And that's what he did to Angela as well. Even though she was putting in, you know, working every day, all day long. We, like I said, we never even got to lunch from the vendor room on those days. The first, you know, real meal we had was that night, you know, at the banquet. It, it, and even then I didn't get to sit down about 10 or 15 minutes. You know, so that all that all that together just absolutely left me. Uh, just I just you know, I it just, it just soured me on the whole process. You say you were treated like lowly employees, but to clarify, you guys weren't employees. There was no salary. You weren't paid, and you weren't. Brian Blair wasn't your boss, correct? Absolutely, right. And I you know I don't mind doing all those things. I've never I never complained about having to do the things. It was the way I was talked to as if I was beneath, you know, as a size lowly employee who's expected to take orders when I was working, you know, six in the morning to midnight every night, you know, as, as, I don't know. I, you know, we're, we were, all, we're volunteers. We don't have to, you know, put up with that. We don't have to be talked to like we're dirt, but I, you know, I, I stayed with it though. After that, I didn't resign right away. Well, let me ask you a couple more things about the Vegas convention, because I've heard various things from various people. Obviously, the 605 Super Podcast had a pretty strong contingent there, but I also heard from people that weren't sitting at our tables. So let me ask you a couple things. I heard from several people, and obviously I heard a lot of great things about what you did. I heard a lot of great things about what Roy Lucier did. You guys brought a lot to the table this year that have been missing in past years at CAC. There is a feeling among some that Brian Blair was very interested in having fun, hanging out with his friends, with his former colleagues, instead of doing any actual duties on behalf of CAC. Would that be a fair assessment in your eyes, or is that off base? I can't say whether that's what he was interested in, because I never saw him. You know, uh, when I took over the position, in fact, one of the first things I said when I took it over and we got talking about the reunion, I said point blank, Brian, Dean, I have got to have you help me and walk me through the reunion while we're there and before, because I have no idea what my job responsibilities are. I don't know what to do or, or anything. That was part of the problem, because here I am, not, not a clue about how to do things, 
and and I didn't see anybody. I mean, I saw Dean. He was selling, you know, selling the reunion tickets, but I didn't see Brian. You know, he never came over and said, Scott, you know, do you need anything? Can I help you? You know, is there any questions I can? Not once. I only saw him in the in the vendor room twice the whole the whole three days. So that that's that's a big was the big part of the problem. You know, I figured I figured everything out. I didn't, you know, it was no big deal. But there was times that you know I would have liked to have a sounding board say, hey, you know, what if I try this or what if I do that? And I'm assuming he got one of the suites that were offered at regular room rates. Oh yeah, yeah. President always gets that. And Carl had the other, and Dean had the other. And I'm good with that. You know, I, I didn't have any problem with that. The big complaint I heard about the banquet was the length. That speeches ran long, that the entire event was way too long, that people got pooped, that people left. Whose responsibility does that fall on? How, how did that happen the way it happened? Yeah, we sit down with every single person and twice maybe or, or more. Uh, I even sent out emails to every honoree uh, as as an additional reinforcement of the rules. We tell everyone you've got 10 minutes, and that includes your presenter. Not only you know your presenter, what his introduction speech, and then your speech, total of 10 minutes, no more. And yet we had guys go 30, 40 minutes or more, and it happens all the time. But that is under was under Brian's purview. Even though I helped try and, you know, make sure they knew it by sending out emails in the days before it happened, that was Brian's responsibility. And I, and I can't put a lot of blame on Brian because he did and I did stress the fact that they had a specific amount of time. But what do you do? You know, when these guys are up there getting their award, do you just get up there and pull them off stage? Say, hey, your time's up. It's it's a hard thing to do. I remember back in the '90s, uh, Red Bastine coming out <laughs> onto the stage with this long hook, and it, I bet that thing was eight feet long. And he would stretch it out and and get the guy, the wrestler up there making his speech around the neck, uh, just as a joke. But I remember him walking across the stage with that big hook, like he was going to pull him off stage. <laughs> but but it's a hard thing to do. How do you go up and say, hey, man, your time is up, you know, you got to, let's cut it. You know, it's just a hard, it's, I don't know. I would wonder, did anyone say anything to Jim Ross? Because obviously he was the MC of the event and he's really the main person that's actually on the dais that can move things along to the best of his capabilities there. Did anyone talk to Jim Ross about this? Not that I know of. I, I, to me, the MC should know that that's his responsibility is to make sure things roll along. But again, Jim couldn't go up to those honorees and say, hey, you know, you, you've already got used up your 10 minutes. You know, uh, I'll give you another minute. You know, he really can't do that. You, you, you know, it's, it's just a hard thing to do. I will say this. J.J. Dillon had the program. He was MC on Tuesday night. He ran that program like a pro. I'm not saying JR didn't, but JJ Dillon is a master. He got up there, he spoke for for each presenter that he brought up there introduced. He didn't speak more than I'd say 30 seconds. He did exactly what he was supposed to do, got them on the stage, they did their thing and then left. So, uh, that's just a little plug for JJ cuz he's he's the best in my in my opinion. I want to ask you about one of my personal issues with CAC, and obviously I don't attend and I'm not a member, but I think the core mission of CAC is so important, to help out wrestlers who are struggling, especially the ones who are struggling for health reasons. 
And that's why it bothered me that Hannibal, who is someone, for the record, I I don't like. I, I don't think he's very good at what he does, but I also don't think he's a very good person. He does all these videos at CAC. He films the events. He films the banquets. He films the speeches. Does CAC see any of that money? Because I went back and forth with Brian Blair a little bit about this on Twitter, and the way I came out of it was thinking Brian Blair has no idea how YouTube works. Right. Does CAC see any of that money? And if not, why wouldn't CAC try to build their own archive of footage instead of allowing someone else? If the vendors are all paying all that money to have a space in the vendor's room, why is someone being allowed to shoot video and profit off it and not have CAC share in those profits, if not just do it themselves? Can you explain any of this to me? Yes. uh, A good example, just before I went to... uh... I got had to get security for the first uh, first seminar to make sure. That's another thing I was in charge of was making sure we had somebody in place that when people came in to go into the seminar that they had their name tag. So I was over there getting set, getting the guy set up. I went in there to be sure everything was rolling. I walked in to be sure uh, Ron Hutchison and whoever he had on that first seminar had everything they needed. Be sure they you know had everything they needed for the seminar and. Uh, Hannibal's dad was standing there and I saw them in there with the camera and I said, what are you filming on this? He says, oh, we're shooting the whole seminar. I said, what, what do you mean the whole seminar? He says, well, we shoot the whole thing. We shoot uh, everything. I said, and what do you do with it? He says, well, we put it online. I said, what do you mean you put it online? I said, I, you know, I'm okay with you shooting it and using excerpts, maybe a minute of a seminar or a minute, you know, Partway through, a minute, half, you know, 30 minutes later, a minute later, you know, maybe three total minutes for the seminar. But if you're going to put all the seminars online, what does that encourage people to, that, that to you know, to come to the reunion when they sit at home and watch it? And not only that, but there's people that bought reunion tickets and bought plane fares and pay for hotel rooms that you know, they paid all that money to see these seminars. And yet you're giving it to everybody else in the world for free who don't support the CAC. He says, "Why? Well, that's just the way." I mean, he's got a little huffy with me. He says, "Well, that's the way it is." He says, "We," he says, "We put it all online, and that's that's it." So that's one of the things I was going to tackle this year. Uh, is is what because the CAC there are ways. Uh, I talked with Roy Lucher about it, and there are ways we could we could you know monetize that. We're not going to make a fortune off of it, but but I'll guarantee you that they're making something or they wouldn't be doing it. They're absolutely making money on it, and that's my point. It's either let him do it and CAC gets a large portion of those profits, and YouTube is a very profitable exercise. Trust me, I have a little bit of background in this. Or CAC does it itself and profits off those videos, and that money goes back into the pot. And again, the core mission Help wrestlers in need. That gives you more money to play with. Maybe there won't be a $500 limit on helping out wrestlers per year. Maybe you can increase that if you can get more revenue in there. And I would even argue against your point. I I certainly see the validity in your point. But my thing is, even if you're going to put up the whole thing, you know, you don't have to do it right away. You can wait a little while so there is an exclusive period for the people who actually paid to attend that seminar. But that entire video could be making money for the CAC, which in turn makes money for the boys in need. I don't understand why that would be given away to someone to profit on their own. If no one else has that capability, unless you're going to tell me he's paying a vendor's fee 
And then still I would question why he would be allowed to do that. I don't understand the logic or the reason behind it. I know that apparently Brian Blair and Hannibal have a good relationship, but as a businessman, that seems to be the height of stupidity to me. I agree with you 100%. But even if they do get to air it all, what good does it do to come back after the reunion, put it all online, and then the rest of the year, it's forgotten? You know, everybody gets real excited. They watch it all. Well, it, you just made a point there. You know, why not put, say, 10 minutes on there? On there Next week, put 10 minutes of another seminar. The following week, 10 minutes of another seminar. Next week, come back and put 10 more minutes of that first seminar. Then next week. So all year long, that CAC is constantly in the minds of the people. Not just that one time a year. And then by the time the reunion gets here, it's forgotten. Throw it out in portions so that every week there's something online, something new that reminds people of the CAC and what a great time we have at the reunion. You know, but but that that's not the way they do it. And I don't understand that. I, Brian's thing, he came on in emails. He says, well, they, they, I understand that they're not really making any money on this. It's blah, blah, blah. Well, yeah, that's everybody's going to tell. That's what he's told. But it's, you know, that's the way, way it is. You know, so I. I just said, okay, well, I was going to deal with that later. I wasn't going to deal with it then. I had enough on my plate after the reunion, just getting thing, other things taken care of and revamping the website again for next year's tickets. So I just didn't even you know, follow that. Well, I'm not going to harp on this too much because obviously I've expressed my point of view on this. I think it's financially irresponsible for CAC to operate the way it does right now with video content. But let's talk about you and your experience again. The convention was in April. Between April and when you resigned, what happened? Well, I came back with no, I really didn't have a problem. Um, I wasn't so soured that I was going to quit. I, like I said, I came back and revamped the website. We had a lot of emails, all of us, the board, back and forth. And several things were done and said that really started me questioning why I was doing what I was doing. A couple things. I put forth as ways to help us move into the 21st century, uh, like online registration forms where people could actually fill out their information, online uh, forms where the executive board could actually cast, if we had a, say we have a uh, a motion brought up to, you know, something we need done. I could put it on there. All the members could go to that, that webpage and cast their vote. It would have been made it so simple rather than everybody having to get online or get on the phone on a conference call, set up the conference call, which is something else I did, set up the conference calls. But it, but it, my response, anything, the stuff like that that I got, one person in particular, he says, we don't need that. He says, Colorado Alley's been doing, doing things the way we've been doing it for 30 years. He says, sometimes technology is just a, is just a problem. And I'm like, Really? You don't want to move forward when you've got modern technology that I've got. You don't have to do anything. I've got it figured out. I've already got it already. All I have to do is put it, is set it up online, and we do it. But no. And there were several emails just like that where two people in particular came back at me in a very nasty, hateful tone. One, one of the high muckety mucks, came back and said. Uh, so I, I forget what it was about, but came back just, yeah, blah, blah, blah. I said this, that, that, that. But he, 
he completely missed what I was saying. I didn't say, even say anything about what he was saying. And I wrote back, I said, hey, I said, you just emailed me about something that I didn't even talk, didn't even talk about. And you're, you're, you've gone off on some tangent. I said, I said, I said this, which was going to help the club. So it was things like that, slowly, slowly began to work on me. And then one day I finally sat down and said, let's talk this through. And we got on the phone to talk it through. And nothing was listened. Nothing I said was accepted. Everything I said was wrong. I said, listen, let me just do this. I think it's better we just part ways. I said, I've got better things to do with my life. I said, I've got so much to do. I said, I'm way behind. I've, I've devoted so much time to this that I've, other things have gotten behind. And it's not that big a deal. Which Recently, somebody posted something about I quit because I was so busy and I have so many other projects. I'm not why I quit. I quit because you cannot deal with some of the people on the executive board. They want things done their way, which is why the other five or six board members left as well. I mean, there's been a mass exodus of people leaving the executive board of the Alley Club over the past several years. So it's obvious where the problem lies. I asked you a little earlier how someone gets on the executive board. How does someone leave the executive board other than resignation? Is there any other yeah. mechanism? Well, to- that you, you can be voted off. Any position could be, well, let me qualify that. One of the other things I did was, try, was set up new bylaws. I scoured the internet for bylaws of nonprofit corporations, and I worked for two solid weeks on that. So, because here's the problem. We get in a board meeting on, you know, on telephone, and we have no guidelines, no bylaws. So somebody says, well, let's do it this. Well, you know, what, we don't want to do it that way. You know, you know we, we want to look at, have something to say. We'll say, well, the bylaws say we have to do it this way. In other words, the vice president can't just say, well, listen, I, I want this done. And I'm going to have my way or nothing. You know, you can't do that. If you've got a bylaws that say the, max, the uh, majority of the board has to vote for a certain issue or majority of the board has to vote for, to give out money or whatever, then, th- then you've got something you can hang your hat on. You can go back and say, okay, say the bylaws say this, so we have got to do it this way. But that's not the way things are done. Things are pretty much done, you know. Everybody glad handing each other. Somebody wants one thing done. And I'm okay with that. You know, if you can convince somebody to change your mind, there's nothing wrong with that. But uh, I don't know. What was your question? I'm, I forgot now. About how someone would be removed from the board if they were going to be removed beyond yeah. them resigning. One of, one of the things in the bylaws that I put was that to leave the executive board, you either have to resign or Two-thirds of the board members have to vote them off, and that stands for any position. So that's pretty much how that works. Uh, other than that, you just, you know, if you're tired of being on it, you just resign. That's it, you know, and there's nothing much they can say or do. You're not, you don't have a contract. You're not, you know, legally obligated to stay. Were your bylaws adopted by CAC? Uh, I went round and round and round. We, we kept saying uh, yeah, we got to talk about them. And then we talk about them. And then, then Brian emailed me. I still got all these emails. He says, he says, Scott, you and I need to talk, have a call together about these bylaws. He wants to, wanted to write them the way he wants to write them. You know, he wanted them to say what he wanted them to say. And I said, no, I said, we need to do this as a board. The board needs to do this. I said, what I'd like, and I wanted to do it where it didn't waste a lot of my time. What 
was said was, well, let's get on the board and we'll talk about it article by article. And I said, no. I say, you write down your concerns. I was telling the whole board this. I said, write down your concerns, what you like about it. If you've got a problem with one of the articles, then send it to me. I'll put them all together in, into the bylaws as, as questions and you know things that people have said, comments. That way, when we get online, we can tackle just those things. We don't have to go through. It was a, it's a five-page bylaws I wrote. So we don't have to tackle every single little article. We just go through and tackle the things somebody has a problem with. Okay? Somebody says, okay, or it says in the bylaws, a uh, board member can only be removed with a vote of 75% of the of the standing board members. Okay, we get somebody has a problem with that. We get there and we say, okay, let's talk about this. I, I don't. I think we could do it with 50%. We ought to be able to remove somebody with 50%. And we discuss that. But why discuss every single little article where nobody has any problem with? But they didn't want to do that. Brian wanted me to call him and say, and him and I talk about it so that we could work out. A, you know, he thought I was going to just let him work out what he wanted on it, and that's that's in part the whole problem. Brian has his way of doing things. I have my way of doing things. Since I resigned, he told somebody I was a control freak. Yeah, I was a control freak, except I didn't control anybody else. I just controlled what I did, which was just about everything. I did as much as I could for the benefit of the club. So if that makes me a control freak, great. You know, I'm a control freak. In your eyes, because I've heard this from other people, so I'm going to ask you your opinion. Did Brian treat the CAC like it was his personal, I won't even use the word business because I'm going to assume that he's not profiting off it. But did he treat it like it was his own project, like he was in charge, and obviously he's the president and CEO, but that he was in charge and that everything was going to be done exactly the way he wants it? Now, you know, that's a hard question to answer. I never really got that, but here's what I did get. Before Brian, there was a president, an executive vice president, a secretary, a treasurer. Brian came in, and he wanted to be CEO. He wanted, I mean, he wanted this big title. And to me, it's not about who is who, who has what title. This is about a nonprofit organization help that's set up to help people in financial, dis, you know, pe people who, who need financial help. But he had to be the CEO, and at one point he was even, he even felt like when the board voted on something, if it wound up as a tie, that he got a second vote as a CEO. So that was, to me, I don't understand that. Why do you got to be the CEO? Be the president. Forget the CEO stuff, but that was his big thing. He wanted to be, quote, unquote, the CEO of the Color for Alley Club. Nobody has ever done that before. So that tells me a little bit about, you know, what his attitude may be as far as the way he looks to people. You know, he wants to be the big, big honcho, you know, and I couldn't care less about it. I did everything I could do to help the club without all that extra. You know, I didn't go and go around and say, oh, I should be. In fact, I heard that somebody else had been arguing with Brian because they wanted to be the CEO this before I came around along. And that was part and parcel why one of the executive board members left, because they had this big argument at CAC in front of everybody. And it, it's things like this just constant with the CAC it just over and over and over. And I don't want that in my life. I just want to live my retirement, have a great life, enjoy what I do. I want to enjoy writing about wrestling, researching about wrestling. I don't need this other garbage. 
What do you think could be done to improve things? Do you see any mechanism to improve the way the board of directors is run, the way the office of president and I guess CEO is handled? What could actually be done from that level? Not necessarily the the nuts and bolts of the reunion, but as an actual body, what could be done to improve CAC from your point of view? Ah, that's that's just a hard thing to say. People are people. They're going to react like they're going to react. Some people work better together than others. Some people want total control. Some people don't want to, you know, if they want something, they want something, whether everybody else agrees or not. It's a hard, really a hard thing to say. Uh, To me, they simply need people whose only interest is advancing the CAC to help them help other people financially and with no other pre-existing motive. And I don't, you know, Dean Silverstone, that's his heart and soul is all he thinks about is how can we help people? How can we help people financially? Brian his is raising money, raising money, raising money. And granted, it's to help people, but I think it's too much on, we got to raise money. We got to make money here. Got to sell these tickets. Or if we don't sell these tickets right away, we're not going to make as much as we ever have. And it just, you know, it's just got to be somebody that's got a real, real heart for what they're doing. And I hear that from Brian, but I just don't, I think the the problem is in the attitude towards the people who he works with is is what sets people off. That's that's why the other board members, and these board members I'm t- talking about that left, they had been there years and years and years and had been working with the CAC for decades. And for all of a sudden, five or six of them to just up and quit, that tells you a little something. Again, I've heard different things from different people. One of the things I've heard, and tell me if you think this is fair, is that Brian was more interested in being a boss and being in a lot of ways a politician and schmoozing than actually being a boss and running things in an efficient manner or being an executive in charge of the company. It seemed that he was more interested in being a boss, according to other sources I have on this. Do you think that's fair? I would have to say, based on what I saw, that's exactly how he acted because he didn't serve any function at the reunion as far as taking care of this or making sure a table had something on it. Or And to me, I don't care who you are. If that's too menial for you to do, that that's a shame because I did everything I could to to help that reunion, you know, set up, break down. But to me, if unless a person is actively involved in doing things other than schmoozing, other than answering phone calls, other than answering emails, then anybody can do that. You know, you, you need to be there in the trenches with the people who are really working. Roy Lusher, God bless him. That guy works harder than anybody I know at promoting the CAC and the things he did at CAC to help out, he he was always there. And I had so many people come up to me in the vendor room. Can I do this? Is there something I can do? Can do you need me to work security? Do you need me to set up anything? Can I do this or what? Just let me know what you want. I got that all the time. But it's a shame I didn't get it from the people that sh- I should have gotten it from, the people I needed the help from. Scott, what led to your resignation and how did it happen? And let me also say that I've heard from other people And uh, you probably don't even know this, but I've heard things that Brian Blair has said about your leaving the board. And obviously he paints it in a completely different light 
But what actually happened? What led to you leaving CAC and how did it go down? Well, it was exactly what I was saying a little bit ago. The phone call, I had a phone call with Brian and he didn't seem willing to listen to why I was upset about the way things went down at the reunion, but he wanted to nitpick these little things. And that's fine. But at the same time, if he's if all he's wanting to do is nitpick the little things and not understand what I was going through, the angst I went through that weekend trying to take care of all those jobs, then I just didn't want to be a part of it. It just made me realize, why am I doing this? And that's what I told him when it, it just got to a point. I said, Brian, this isn't going to go any farther, so we're not going to get anywhere. I said, as of right now, I'm just going to resign. I said, I got too much life to live, too many things I want to do, and nothing against the CAC, but uh, let's just move ahead. Y'all can do your thing. I hope that I've given a lot of ideas that you can uh, move forward with, that you can take and run with. And 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 I'm 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 just through and I and I said thank you very much for, for the opportunity I enjoyed the time I had I said and I'll talk to you later and that was it. Some of the reports I heard from people, and it wasn't even just CAC. I think it may have also been the Hall of Fame in Waterloo, Iowa, was about Brian's health. Was his health an issue at CAC? I think well, yeah. Um, Brian had a lot of back problems. I mean, his back was absolutely, he was in agony. And, and I say the agony with a capital A. And God bless him. He was going, had so much pain. It was unbelievable. But that didn't affect, you know, that wasn't the cause of why he didn't help me or help, you know, come up and try and help me and give me ideas or come up and explain things or any of that. It's just because he didn't do it. Uh, but yes, he, his health was really bad. He's had a back operation since then. I don't know what the results are. I haven't heard anybody say he's still in a lot of pain, but then again, I really haven't, like you said at the beginning, I haven't been around, you know, I, I don't pay any attention to Facebook anymore, hardly. I've just got, I'm sort of moved on to some other things. And so I, I'm not really in the loop like I used to be. Have you heard that Brian Blair has mentioned to people that you were fired from CAC? Absolutely. Rocky Johnson told me that with his own lips, and which was a result of me having some problems with Rocky as well uh, later on. But uh, yeah, Rocky told me that Brian said he fired me. And then he said another reason I left. He, uh, then in another breath, Brian told him that I left because I was upset because my wife couldn't be on the board. Well, number one, she did so much at registration, handled it smoothly, that during one of our board meetings, Dean Silverstone brought up the fact that we ought to add Angela to because we needed somebody to fill Gloria Lovell's spot as recording secretary and handle registration. So he brought up the fact that we vote on Angela as a new member of the executive board. Brian, of course, um, took it upon himself to just raise. He didn't like it. He says, well, if she does, then I say if we bring her on, then she doesn't get a vote because it's not right for a husband and wife to be on here and both of them have a vote. Well, Chris and Tom Drake had a vote. They were on the board together. And it isn't like, and that to me said, I even asked Brian, I said, Brian, do you think I would vote on anything or Angela would not vote against something that I vote for if, if she didn't believe in it? He said, oh, no, no, no. I said, well, then it shouldn't matter. I said, if she votes her conscience and she votes what's best for the CAC, regardless of what I vote, 
then it shouldn't matter. I said, she, she will do, do the job. And I said, not only that, but she's doing the job. She's handling registration. She's doing all kinds of stuff for this. Not only registration, you won't believe the things she brought to the table at the reunion. I'm talking about decorations and candy on the tables for everybody. Uh, just one thing after another, you won't believe the, she has so many good ideas on, uh, she's, she's a party person. She loves doing things like that. So she brought a lot to the table. So actually I, I'm digress here, but she actually was on the board. Now, the question is, Rocky, Brian, when I emailed him about it, and he says, well, I came in at the end of a conversation, and I didn't say anything. I said, I didn't get into it. I said, well, that's funny, because Rocky seemed to know about my wife being on the executive board. I said, but the funny thing about that is nobody else knew about it except the board members. We had never announced it. We had never told him, but I never told anybody. The only people that knew was me, Brian, Carl, Royal, and Dean. And yet Rocky Johnson knew about it. So I know good and well that Brian Blair told Rocky Johnson that I was upset because my wife couldn't be on the board. Rocky had it twisted. He just didn't, he didn't understand what Brian had said, I guess. But that wouldn't even have been brought up if Brian hadn't said something to it. So, yes. So, yeah, there's things been said. That, uh, like I said, one person he told I was a control freak. And uh, and there's been other things uh, other people have told me. So. Is it fair to say that Brian Blair is a control freak, too? I mean, is it something where, I mean, you admitted it. You said, I can be a control freak. Do you think he can be as well, or do you think it's the opposite? Well, to me, uh, as far as the way he treated me, I think he was. To tell me I was in charge of, re of registration. And two other things. Uh, when uh, Ben Brown called Brian to say, and said, Ben Brown is in charge of the WWE talent. He called Brian and he says, Brian, you know, I need to get the WWE talent in through the back door. Brian says, well, that's Scott Teal's job. Let me give you his phone number. So I, all of a sudden I'm in charge of getting the WWE talent in. So, and then uh, there was signs had to be put on the table. Somebody said, well, Brian, we need these signs put on the table. You know, the, 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 or the signs aren't correct or something. And Brian says, well, that's Scott Teal. Give Scott Teal a call. He'll take care of it. everything he did. Oh, the other thing was auctions. Somebody had some items they wanted to donate for a silent auction. So they came to me and they said, Brian told me to see you because you're in charge of we have some auctions to be donated. And, and they told him, he told us that you were the one in charge of that. So everything was in charge. So as far as being a control freak, if Brian, Tries, he was control, trying to control me. I'm talking about from beginning to end. Everything was Scott Teal's responsibility. So, yes, that could be. But I'm not a control freak, except I want to control what I'm responsible for. If I'm responsible for registration, if I'm responsible for the vendor room, you can bet I'm a control freak because I'm going to get it done right. I'm going to make sure it's done right. So it seems that Brian does a lot of delegation. Is that fair? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. After you resigned, is there anything that comes out of it after that? Do you talk to Dean Silverstone, who you've known for years? What happens with these other board members that also resigned? Can you shed any light on the aftermath of your resignation? Uh, I had a couple that were uh, on the board before that had resigned that, in a nice, funny way, said, I told you so, because they had warned me. Uh, they had told me exactly how Brian was. And uh, so I, you know, I, I, but I, I told him, I said, you know, I get along with Brian fine. Brian's good. I have no problems with him, you know, 
but yeah, I had people that emailed me and said, you know, I told you that this would happen because this is what he did with us. And oh, the horror stories I've heard. It's it's just unbelievable. But yeah, I've, I've had people, you know, come to me and say that they know the problems. I've had a lot of people say that have given me I, you know, things. They say, you know, we understand this because, you know, this is about CAC, blah, blah, blah. And we, we've been asking for this to be changed or, or this person to be honored. And, you know, all that's, a, you know, it's a hard thing to do. But uh, I've had so many people come to me with their problems with the CAC since then. There it is, my conversation with Scott Teal. You will hear him again on the show in a few weeks. Part two of this conversation dealing with the Rocky Johnson book, Soul Man, that was written by Scott Teal for ECW Press. We'll be airing then, and I think a lot of people will really want to hear that interview again. That book is now a hot commodity. It is a collector's item. It has been pulled from the market by ECW Press. You will hear the entire story as to why on the Super Podcast either episode 102 or 103, more than likely episode 102, quite honestly. But with that said, as we begin to wrap things up, want to make a few notes here. Of course, there are various ways you can support the Super Podcast. If you would like to make a one-time donation to the production of this show, you could do so. PayPal.me slash Super Podcast or on an ongoing monthly basis, Patreon.com slash Super Podcast. Unlike other shows, this is not a Patreon account where you get bonus content. You merely support the Super Podcast and the production of the show, and quite frankly, the production of all Arcadian Vanguard shows. PayPal.me slash Super Podcast or Patreon.com slash Super Podcast. Of course, use our Amazon links, tinyurl.com slash SuperPod Amazon. By using that link, you support this show. You don't do anything differently than you would normally do, but you show a little bit of love and support to us, as does our good friends over at Amazon.com, tinyurl.com, slash superpod, Amazon. And also don't forget, if you want a t-shirt, stickers, magnets, whatever it may be, the official Super Podcast store, tinyurl.com, slash superpod store. I want to make mention once again that this episode of the Super Podcast was brought to you by our friends, the wrestling fans over at Ramsor Records, R-A-M-S-E. You are, don't forget, ramsorrecords.kungfustore.com on sale right now. The brand new album by David Childers, Interstate Lullaby. Check it out today. Also, if you want to follow the show, you can on Twitter. We are at 605pod, or you can follow me at Great Brian Last or the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network at Super Podcasts. Also on Facebook, facebook.com slash superpodcast. The 605 Super Podcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. For all of our guests this week, I'm the great Brian Last. Tally-ho!